what it is that they do is here, not out here. I had a great athlete that I worked with years ago who uh, they couldn't stand uh, like competition. They hated competition, but they were very, very, very talented. So when I sat down with the athlete, we, we talked about, okay, like, you know, why is practice different? Why is practice different? And they said, like, well, I'm, I'm you know, I'm training with people. Why is the race any different? And they just kind of looked at it like, I guess it isn't really, you know, you're, you're seeing this cutthroat thing you're supposed to project into the situation and you hate it. And, you know, instead this person ended up going to the next race, you know, and this is a very high level competitor, like super bubbly, relaxed, excited, like wanted to meet people, like, to, you know, talk about like, how's your experience? What's your best, you know, event, those kinds of things. And they absolutely annihilated the field. I encourage uh, almost any team that I work with and, and individual athletes that I work with, I encourage the concept of curiosity and playfulness. Um, you know, the, the old adage of like, you can take the sport seriously, but yourself lightly um, is, is super important because the, that curiosity is going to get you beyond that uncomfortable point. Um, whether it's like you're you're flat out in a 400 on a track or you're at, you know, mile 100 of a century, then it, the curiosity is for like the next five seconds, the next five minutes, the next, like, I wonder if I can go harder instead of like, I think I'm at my limit. Now you're making decisions about yourself. That's sports psychologist, Matt Bain. And this is the Bike Pack Canada podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bike Pack Canada podcast. I'm your host, Steve O'Shaughnessy. How's everybody doing today? Is everyone still buzzing from the Bike Pack Canada Summit a couple weeks ago? I had such a blast. It was so great to uh, catch up with old friends and make some new friends. And uh, yeah, it was super fun. Great, great group this year. Uh, the groups are always good. Uh, the overnighter was a blast. I had such a good time down there. A little bit cold, but uh, we all survived. There's a great shelter down there. Nice fire going inside. It was quite lovely. Uh, again, I have no voice intros for you this week. Um, if you want to send me a voice intro and have it featured on the podcast, you can send them to me at bikepackcanadapodcast at gmail.com. You can also send guest suggestions uh, and feedback about the podcast. So coming up in the next few weeks, uh, I'm really stoked to bring you uh, Guy Stewart. We're going to be talking to Guy Stewart at some point. In fact, I think he may be coming out on Friday. We're going to do a quick overnighter, uh, probably just up to Lake Enid. And uh, I'm thinking maybe we'll try to do the podcast out there. I don't know. Depends on weather, um, uh, how many batteries I want to bring, etc. How much equipment I want to bring. It might be fun to kind of do it outside, I think. So maybe we'll do that. And of course, we have RJ Sawyer, who's still in queue, coming up in the next little bit. So today I bring you sports psychologist Matt Bain. Matthew has an extensive psychology background in a broad range of areas, clinical diagnosis and treatment family-centered practices, motivation, performance concepts, and emotional management have led to a depth of practice. This variety has allowed him to reach populations not only for bettering problem-solving, but performing better in life. Past and present occupations include sports psychology, professional counseling, addictions counseling, professional sport coaching, 
and developing and instructing courses at the post-secondary level has provided Matthew with a vast and diverse vocational background. If that sounded red, it was. I read it off his website. <laughs> but uh, I really had a great time talking to Matt. Uh, sharpen your pencils, like I said in a, in a previous Instagram post. Um, this is a bit of a departure from what we usually talk about, but I think there's a lot of takeaways in this podcast. So uh, listen up. Um, think about the loved ones in your life. Think about your kids. Think about your uh, personal training that you do. And uh, think about self-love. And uh, I think that once you're finished this, I'm pretty sure you're going to have some great takeaways that'll help you perform better on the bike and also in life. And now I bring you Matt Bain. Heck yeah, I'm ready. Good evening, man. How's it going? Good. How you doing? (laughs) Pretty good. (laughs) Hang on, my heater's on. Is it cold out there? Uh, It's in my basement, yeah. Oh, (laughs) it's kind of cold and kind of humid, actually. You're kind of damp. (laughs) Is that your uh, home office? This is the home office. This is the, the home base. I park my butt and try to get work done, but it rarely ever works. So yeah, there's too much too much noise. <laughs> is there? Yeah. Do you work from? What's that? Do you work from home a lot? No. Well, yes and no. I work. I study a lot from home um, because it's it's where I'm a I'm a big visual person. So printed journals, those kinds of things, like. I got like a like piles of journals and things everywhere, like all the electronic stuff. I try to use my iPad, but then I'll highlight something and then I'll go away and I'm like, what did I read? And so when I write notes and stuff in the sidelines, it kind of makes me, kind of brings recall back a little bit easier. So, Do you find that's easier when you're um, working with paper rather than digital? Oh, yeah. Way easier yeah. to work? Yeah, way yeah. easier. I'm, I'm trying, like I bought an, an Apple... Like I bought that the iPad, the Apple Pen. I make notes and things. I do my best, and because I, I, it bothers me that I gotta print things. Yeah, oh, yeah, so I know. I'm doing my best not to keep crushing the environment, but like, it's there's tough. times where I'm like, okay, I just, I need, I need this physical thing in front of me. Yeah, <laughs> and I yeah. think there's probably a, a psychological thing with that being able to absorb information oh, yeah. because you're using your hand. You're actually using your hand to, yeah. to make notes. So the recall oh, must. Exactly. Man, I don't, I don't write anything down. I don't write anything. <laughs> I'm envious down. of you. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, it's so bad. I forget stuff all the time. And I, I started. Uh, I had a book here, so I, I was, I would sit down and open the book and write out questions. And and I just find because I was an IT guy for so long that uh-huh. I can sit at a keyboard and just like tap out ideas way more effectively. I think. Yeah. I don't know. Everyone yeah. works differently, right? I'm envious. I'm uh, I don't know. I'm man. trying. I'm trying so hard. <laughs> I don't know. I think being in the digital world has kind of um, um, stunted my uh, development, and because I just don't read. Like I don't yeah. read. I don't write. Yeah, it's everything's digital. It's too bad. Yeah. I've, I've heard they're taking cursive out of school now. Is that right? I've heard that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Which is oh, kind of crazy God. because that's that's almost like a deep cultural thing. It's not just about re- reading and writing. It's just yeah. where, our culture, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Like recording history has always been done with someone's hand. Well, and to me, like there's, there's a, there's a part of memory for, you know, the deliberate action, right? Like if you, if you need to recall something, you know, you're, you're going to have a lot more interaction with it when you are thinking and connecting to it, you know, mechanically, whereas <laughs> typing for me, like I can type something out. I've read things that I've typed out and I'm, I'm shocked I've, I've written them. 
and you know both sides i'm like wow this is profound i said that awful yeah (laughs) but like when it's written word i'm like i'll look at it digest it as i'm going along and like all my journaling is handwritten and for that reason because i think there's a, a almost a visceral connection to what it is you're writing and when you have that visceral connection you know, there's that the the emotive part, the cognitive part. I think is so much more valuable versus the the tapped out word, so to speak. I'm not saying it isn't, but you know, that's why I think sometimes maybe people have difficulty writing, you know, a blog because they're seeking an emotional connection uh-huh. with something that doesn't have uh, an emotional, you know, uh, element to it or, or a psychomotor element to it the same way that it would be in written words. So. That's interesting, and I think too, it's it's uh, for me because I, I'm not like a wicked fast typer, but because I can type pretty fast, I can mm-hmm. type way fast. I can get words down way faster than I can with my hand. Yeah. And I find it, I find slowing down really frustrating. It's part of my mm-hmm. personality. Like I'm just a little ADD like that. It's like, oh, I have a thought. Mm-hmm. I got to get it out. Tappity tap, 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 you know? <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Yeah. So how long, yeah. how long have you been in the, uh, the psychology field? Um, the, well, the counseling is my, my journey is kind of interesting. Like it's very obtuse in a way it's tell us about it. Well, it, it, it started, I guess, in, uh, in graduating from university and, and rec admin really like I was a rec therapist and kind of came into a practicum. And then the broadening of it was, was kind of interesting because I began kind of the counseling field. A lot of the theories were the same counseling theories, intervention theories and things. And I became absolutely fascinated with that area. Um, as it, as my, my fascination grew in the counseling field, I, I took on a master's in education actually, because I really enjoyed the blend of the psychoeducational facets, like, you know, concepts around addictions, counseling around self-esteem, grief and loss, those kinds of things. And I found it really interesting to uh, conceptualize like a learning environment, like a psychoeducational environment, and then a very personal uh, counseling environment that you could occur within like individual or group counseling. Um, And then I, so I did a master's degree in education and I had three sort of specific, you know, psychology of learning courses that really piqued my interest. And, you know, it sort of broadened that, uh, that fascination for me, but what was coming underneath of it was uh, I was a professional swim coach at the time as well. And um, I was told all the time, like you're, you know, we're, we, we can't retain senior athletes in Grand Prix. We can't retain senior athletes in swimming. You know, you know, you have to have a big base, like 250, 300 kids, because then you get down to 10 really good senior athletes. And I just didn't buy that. And so I kind of started to read a lot about motivation in 2005, 2006. And it became pretty evident to me as a coach that you could <laughs> actually facilitate a culture that retained athletes, but you had to really get out of their way. And that's when I started to look at, you know, uh, self-determination theory, achievement goal theory, those kinds of things. And um, ultimately like operationalizing it. And, you know, our coaching staff got a lot of, um, positive feedback and, and like accolades for the success we were having with our athletes were retaining 17, 18, 19, 22, you know, year old athletes. And they were all getting to the or peaking, you know, just underneath the national or at the national level. And, you know, they say like, you know, it must be something you're doing. And it's like, no, actually I am out of the way of the athletes. And, 
really you're finding ways in your climate to um, to strike a chord with the athletes, even at young ages, 10, 11, and 12, you know, all the way up to, you know, adults. And the that really started to pique my interest. And I started to wonder about, you know, this, and, and, and it was gaining traction in the sport, the self-determination theory, um, really gaining traction in, in the sport community. It was very big in the education community. Uh, and so I started to become kind of more fascinated with it. And that's where my interest began with kind of a, a PhD, uh, started a PhD, became more fascinated with it in sports. So I did a second master's degree in sport and exercise psychology uh, and then realized like, you know, there's more to this and I wanted to contribute to this. And that's when the PhD kind of process began. And that's kind of another convoluted sort of element. But that's really where it started was the 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 psychology field the counseling field and then the coaching field um and then it just it bloomed from there it's fascinating to realize just how uh pervasive the concept of motivation was maybe this is jumping too far ahead but um how how, how do you stay out of someone's way how do you stay out of an athlete's way and motivate them at the same time because i know i i've done a bit of reading and obviously yes um, most of the podcasts, well, all the podcasts I've done are in a very familiar area to me and this is not. Mm -hmm. So, so diving into like <laughs> self-determination theory and, and the personality traits and breaking it down and, and, uh, it talks about the intrinsic motivations and the extrinsic factors mm -hmm. to that. And so how do you, how do you do that? How do you motivate someone without hindering their progress? But I think the biggest thing to me is is there's nothing more practical than a good theory. And we all understand the concept of autonomy, regardless of our environments. And when I talk to parents or I talk to, to executives, I talk to athletes, I talk to clients, you know, every single one of us understands the concept of autonomy. And autonomy is kind of that core driver um, of, of a lot of our, our um what and how motivation. So it's not a how much motivation, it's how. So too often we confuse the idea, well, I'll step aside here for a second, but too often we confuse the idea of uh, motivation and inspiration. So inspiration is something like, you know, you watch your YouTube video and you, you hear some, you know, good musical score in the background and, you know, I got to be more successful than I want to breathe and all this kind of stuff. And that's great for a, a catalyst and that's inspiration, but it's confused with motivation. And when we talk about motivation, I use the, the, the idea of a fire. Um, inspiration is kind of like the kindling and that lighter fluid and the zip stuff. But motivation is that burning log and the ambers and the idea that you're, that you're constantly kind of monitoring it and, you know, feeding it. But it doesn't have to burn brightly all the time. But we know when it isn't burning brightly. And that's really the concept of autonomy is like, you know, if I'm in a work environment and, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of quote unquote trusted to do well, then someone comes kind of pokes their head in and say like, you know, how's everything going? And, oh yeah, great. You know, and I show them what I'm doing regardless of what that environment is. And so it's, yeah, no, uh, yeah, why don't you try it this way? And someone goes, oh, oh yeah, okay. And yeah, no, maybe you should try it. And they kind of stand over your shoulder and kind of micromanage and and there, there's not one theory, you know, business-wise, motivational-wise, sport-wise, where micromanagement is going to effectively result in long-term commitment. Right. You know, it, it, and, and so someone who's really micromanaging an individual, regardless of the context, is reducing autonomy. 
And it's, it's that inner noise, that frustration that, that fuels to someone where if they look at the undertone of it, they realize just how much their autonomy may have shrunk, whether it's an acute or a, a chronic sort of situation. And when you don't have that choice, um, you're likely to feel, you know, whether it's less competent, you're likely to feel, um, you know, threatened in some ways. And, and whether that threat is, you know, a sense of like, I used to trust this person, or I didn't trust this person, or I might go to people I trust, and I start to, you know, ally myself with them. Like, when you look at a motivational climate, you know, really, it, it, it's breaking it down to understanding it through the lens initially of those three ideas. And so when, you know, when I started looking at that as a swim coach, I, I said things, okay, like, we're going to get rid of punishment. And the other coaches said, well, how do you control behavior? And so we're trying to control behavior through basically contingent uh, response. We're looking to, you know, use the relationship that we have, whether it's power, whether it's respect over another person to suggest that we observe a behavior that's incongruent with what that person wants to do. So, you know, maybe we pull them out of the water and make them do push-ups, whatever. I said, we're done with that. And, you know, it was fascinating because the coaches, I had phenomenal, phenomenal coaches, very well-educated, very interested, very passionate. Um, they were willing to, to really, in our meetings, question it, but then go out and try. And we really reduced to no punishment. We absolutely stopped using punishment. And so when, when people started to look at what it was we were doing, it was giving choice, in a lot of those situations, like, you know, if a 13 year old is being disruptive in a sporting environment, um, you know, it's, it's having a conversation with them very, very quickly. Like, you know, it's, it's clear something's going on for you. I'm not clear what that is. You're not willing to share those kinds of things. I'd really like to know what is it that we can do differently in this 15 seconds to help, you know, and there might be an emotional place where they can't do that. So I'm, I might help them out of the water, but then I sit with them in that moment and I say like, what is it that happened? And, you know, it doesn't matter with the athlete, you know, so-and-so did this or this would happen or I can't stand this or I'm frustrated or that happened at school or whatever. But ultimately, you're now engaged in the idea of relatedness and using that relatedness in a way that's positive to facilitate trust to say, OK, well, that behavior, the thing that I'm observing is clearly what uh, is only a part of the process. So I've got to get behind that process. I have to understand what it is that, that that's being struggled with emotionally or, or cognitively to really understand the athlete. And it takes a lot of front end time. It doesn't take a lot of front end time, but it, we're inclined to do that at the front end time because we're curious beings. And so we're, we kind of give ourselves that time. Then we're able to facilitate and start the process to greater levels of, well, you know, uh, maybe jumping ahead a little bit, the, the facilitation of a progression from, you know, controlled motivation to more autonomous motivation. Right. It sounds, it sounds a lot like empowerment. A great deal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, cause you know, in, yeah. in the, in the case of the workforce, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, the, the work environment, um, you know, at first you're empowered and you're trusted to do that work. And then someone comes in and starts poking around and was wondering, Oh, what did you do in the last, you know, and that it kind of makes you feel less empowered and then yeah. less well, less motivated. You you can see that at, at any place yeah. of work, right? Yeah. If there's any kind yeah. of uh, micromanagement. So you've mentioned uh, autonomy, obviously, which is super important. And and we have actually jumped even ahead further because we we're going to talk about. Well, it's, Sorry, cool. it's cool, man. It's a conversation, <laughs> right? I like it. So yeah. so the there were the three uh, key needs 
in self-determination yeah. theory and one is autonomy which we touched on and then you mentioned quickly connectedness yeah right and and that's that's in the the realm you're talking about is more connectedness with the or it, the relationship with the coach yeah not necessarily um yeah, so it's a community thing well and, and it broadens right like i think there's the big thing about autonomy is when you get out of the way, when you when you create a climate that's an autonomously motivated climate, it doesn't mean that that it's an independent climate, and that's really the confusion a lot of times. Is I'll say to coaches or I'll say to, to executives, listen, like you need to need to provide some great parameters for people, but really they have to be autonomous beings. So the what might be in the framework, and that's your vision and mission, but the how needs to be up to them. And then someone interprets it as independence. And it's like, not necessarily, because independence is that, like we talked about that free will, that's more impunity. Uh, you don't just get to do whatever you want. Right. It's a matter of identifying what it is that's need to be done. But then for, for sport or for you know performance, it's gauging the amount of effort and ability that the person is able to or capable of applying in the moment, and then navigating the seas of that relatedness to ensure that it's important. So you grow confidence through those things. So like I use, like I coach football, I played football, uh, I played team sports, I work with team sports, I work with individual sports, I coach individual sports. Across the banner, there's oftentimes like, well, it's an individual sport, so that person, they're really focused on that. But to reduce the importance of them belonging to something greater than themselves is ridiculous. And so you see it more and more with team sports is like the sense of belonging. Gear day looks no different for a track team than it does for a basketball team. Everybody's wearing the same gear. Everybody's wrapping the same idea. And it's about the belonging. And so the belongingness is not me. Where I think a lot of times as a coach, that's what gets facilitated is that there's a drawn and almost dependence on the coach as the quote-unquote motivator, which looks great and is feeding the ego of the coach. But in reality, is actually quite uh, can be detrimental. It's not detrimental, but it can be detrimental to the athlete's sort of consistent effort and ability when it comes time to perform. And that coach can get very, very frustrated with that and actually end up coercing or manipulating the relationship with the athlete to do what they need them to do. And that's not a motivator. Well, taking away their autonomy, absolutely right. And then also, uh, it's almost like it's almost like a mother father figure, like yeah. a coach is a mother or father to that team. Yeah. And then, you know, if that coach happens to have a huge ego, then yeah, if his team fails and he's yelling at his team because they failed him or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. So when it comes to like, uh, have you done uh, endurance athletes? Have you coached endurance athletes as well? Yep. So like marathon runners or yeah. yeah. Marathon so, runners, Ironman triathletes, uh, endurance swimmers, uh, cyclists. Um, yeah. All sorts. So when it comes, so you, you've, you've managed to step aside, get out of their way and kind of let them, you know, get to their peak level of performance and then game day. So performance day, the day of the race. And they're like, I can't do this, man. I can't, I don't, I don't feel ready. I don't, where, when does that kick in? Or, or is it kind of all the coaching with, with using these theories up to that point has kind of set them up for success? it in it would depend on it's very individual that's yeah. a neat thing it's like like there, like you say there's nothing more practical than a good theory but you can't take a theory and apply it the same way to every person it's about using that lens to look through and understand what it is that that person needs in the moment 
And in that moment, like a person who begins to question may be more related to state anxiety based on the circumstance, which really doesn't have a great deal to do with uh, autonomy, competence, or relatedness. And it may be threatening competence. Hmm, of course. And, but, yeah, but may, I may look at the athlete and, and say in the moment, like, okay, you know, you hear athletes saying, well, you know, trust the process. But in that, in that moment, the mental process is, is rubber in the road. And to the athlete, you've got to figure out whether it's cognitive or, or um, affective. And does the athlete kind of like, are they worried or are they more anxious? Do they feel like they're making decisions about themselves? Or are they projecting kind of anxiety into the environment based on the environmental energy? And you got to find that out. And so if an athlete has projected a ton of sort of quote unquote confidence heading into that circumstance, then there's no question of confidence. It's just a focus on competence. Okay? So it's, it's, you know, I can't do this. It's what do you, what is it that you think you can't do? Hmm. And if the athlete says nothing or I can't do this or like global sort of statements, then you're really talking about something that, that they're making a decision about their ability or of themselves rather than their ability. You know, if they say like, I'm, I'm not sure I can tackle that hill, right? I don't think I can, I can, you know, crush another 24 hours. Like I can't get through this leg. Um, that, that sort of that thinking is that they're making, they're, they're concluding something in the future to influence them in the present. And so ultimately at that time, you've got to bring them back to the present. What is and so what is, is what is it that you're good at? And prior to the preparation is usually things like a confidence inventory or, you know, recognition in the moment, not by the coach, but by the athlete. What is it that they've been really good at throughout the, the training, throughout their, their uh, experiences, throughout their nutrition, those kinds of things, that what is it that you need to lean on right now? And it gets them, zeros them into the moment, and they say, okay, um, I just, I got to get a bar in me. That's a very different statement than I can't do this. And so just by asking them a question, bringing them to the here and now, getting them to focus on you, you've got them to what it is that they actually can do about the circumstance. But that's trained, Steve. I mean, that's the neat thing about it is that that process to help an athlete get to that moment, if you introduce something like that in the moment, it, it almost feels like doubt for the athlete, Right. You're now asking me questions? No, like that's not the time to introduce autonomy. So if I've done that, if that's been my process for that athlete, as they prepare for the here and now, and then they question their abilities based on the future, then we're trying to bring them out of that worry, that anticipatory state, bring them into the here and now. What is it that I can do well? And they ask them in that moment, like, okay, what is it that you need right now? Uh, I just need a bar. I need a bar. I need a bar. Okay, give me some water, uh, change of shoes. Uh, okay, great. Boom. And now they've actually increased competence just based on the ability to manage the emotions of the moment. And you've done that in an autonomous and consistent way. Yeah. It's almost forcing them, uh, gently forcing them into the things they know how to do. Right. Just, yeah. just to cut the nerves. <laughs> yeah. You know, and at a high stress state, right? Right. And I, I, I mean, we're, I think humans are our own worst enemies, right? I learned this, this term the other day is, um, um, our humans are auto autonoetic. Yeah. Is that the correct word? So, so what you're saying there about, you know, uh, thinking and like putting yourself into the future or, yeah. you know, dwelling in the past, yeah. you know, it, it's always, it's always, it, it can cause anxiety. So it's like, 
you almost need to, to flip that future thinking and to just imagine going through the, across the finish line. Imagine yeah. where you're going to be in 24 hours or, or five minutes. Just imagine mm-hmm. once you get going, you know, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. related, but uh, it, it, it kind of, it, it made me curious because it seems like something you could harness. It, it, it can be provided it's practiced, right? right? Like if, if you have an athlete and there's, there's another, so we're kind of jumping a little bit, but yeah, we're... there's an, and, it, and that's okay. Like, because this is kind of sometimes what mental skills are, right? Is, yeah. you know, there's the projection of imagery and the structure of imagery that occurs pre-competitively uh, in training and, you know, you find value and valence in um, having done something well in the past. And then th- that's, that's that semantic memory that you bring up in the moment to have known that you've been capable. Mm. Uh, if I just remind you in that moment, you know, hey, you've done this before. It's going to collide head on with the current, you know, mindset of the athlete and the importance of not letting me down. And so that's, that's probably antithetical to the athlete's performance. But if the athlete has prepared for that moment, there may be a prompt. What do we talk about, about the difficult time in this race? And the athlete goes, ah, ah, ah. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're there. Right. Right. Now they're imaging. Now they're projecting the finish. They want to finish. They want to, you know, they want to see their kids at the finish. They want to see their family at the finish. They want to be, you know, they want to raise their arms in celebration. They want that, that discomfort that might come along with it. And now it becomes rather than it being kind of in that, that overwhelming moment of anxiety, which is not helpful. They start to identify an area of mental competence and then project forward because that's part of their plan. Right. Right. Do you find that there's, um, is there a common, um, so the, the five personality traits, do they, obviously, do they play a role in this? Like the, the, the ocean, the openness, the conscientiousness, extra, you know, extroverts. Um, is there a spectrum in where people fall on those personality traits as to whether they're, uh, more likely to be, uh, highly intrinsically motivated than another individual? It's, they wouldn't, um, you know, that's, it's not necessarily research that I'm familiar with per se is around the connectedness between kind of the big five personality traits and, and what's identified as kind of intrinsic motivation, um, because the lenses will be a little bit different, but personality, uh, arguably, uh, Carol Dweck actually presented a paper in 2017 that challenged the idea of motivation being the foundation of a human, not personality, which was kind of a very interesting read. Uh, she was the author of Mindset, which has been, um, you know, a kind of a transcendent book in in helping people realize that, you know, what it is that they do is here, not out here. And so, but like with regards to kind of the big five personality traits, like, you know, there's the, the, the first trait to emerge is really temperament, right? Like in neuroticism, mm-hmm. not in the insulting way that we use it in, mm-hmm. in the English language, but in like the, the definition of emotionality. Um, and so we have probably the hardest one to change, which is the, the sense of emotionality for moments. So you have somebody who might project a great deal of anxiety in a moment. But if I'm overlooking the fact that that's a trait in that person and I'm trying to apply um, you know, tactics that are supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, pushing them to higher levels of performance as far as like, you know, a deep breathing concept, 
then I've overlooked, I, I've missed the middle ground of kind of like, how do you train? How do you help this person understand that they need to um, adopt a behavior before I'm giving them the behavior because I have overlooked their personality? Uh, maybe they score low on conscientiousness. It's kind of that, like that, um, you know, like whether they're good at something, whether they can organize something, whether they're, they strive for, for high levels of achievement. Um, you know, in that moment, that conscientiousness, if they're low on consciousness is high on, on uh, emotionality, uh, it's, it's going to be a battle to get that person to, to do anything. To, to do any mental training, to follow any plans, to especially if they elicit uh, an emotional side of things. You get someone who might be a pretty high risk taker uh, in that moment, you know, openness to experience and, and high emotionality. You've got someone who's like heading out the door of a plane 66 times to surfboard <laughs> off of a mountain. And you're like, what are you doing? Right? Like there's, <laughs> but, but that's the part, the underlying personality part that personality psychologists would say drives all behavior, which is not necessarily the case. Like there's so much more to us. Uh, neuroscience has shown that, that those traits are malleable. Mm. Right? The openness to experience and agreeableness are, are very malleable traits. Even emotionality after the age of 40 uh, tends to kind of start to lower. So, you know, I think it's, it's those kinds of concepts that, you know, early on, you're training a 13 year old versus a 21 year old, you're training different people. Oh, and yeah. you know, I can't just take a, a concept and say like, well, I'm going to mentally train this athlete the same way I'm going to mentally train that athlete. You know, both need to do imagery. Well, but both may be completely different cognitive spaces, affective spaces. Imagery raises the anxiety of one person and lowers the anxiety of another based on the projection of being successful, how much house, how, you know, what their emotionality would be, whether they're trade anxious to begin with, like there's so many different variables that go into that. Then to me, that's where motivation is so powerful is no matter who that person is, it's introducing the concept of how do you want to be? And a 13 year old can answer a question like, how do I want to be? I don't even know. A 21 year old question can say, I don't even know. <laughs> Great, we're in the same place. And that's a beautiful place to start to design and construct things that'll help them be successful. I don't know if that answered the question, but I think so. I think I think what you're saying is that it, it does lie in a spectrum. Because you could take for instance, I know like I'm completely high in neuroticism and low in conscientiousness. <laughs> I just know the way I am and I'm just like a bit of a flake and you know, cry at TV commercials and stuff. Like I'm just an emotional guy. And yep. I know that um, some people that I've, you know, that some of my friends are very opposite. Like they're just very driven. They're very almost, I don't know how to, how to put it, but uh, yeah, I can totally see how it'd be hard to, mm -hmm. to, so, so you, you get a, you get an athlete that, you know, they're going to the Olympics, you know, in, in a couple of years. And uh, do you actually give them a personality test? Like, do you actually kind of go from the really base level as a sports psychologist and to kind of figure them out and then adopt a plan from that or is, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No. Uh, yeah. Is that yeah. kind of what you do? Like kind of create a baseline to work from of that person. And then because we're not all the same, we're not trained in the same kind of areas, then depending on the person, they, they may or may not like, for example, some of the, some of the sports sites at, at the national level and the Olympic level are, 
are more, um, you know, biofeedback psychs. Uh, some are going to be more uh, mental, me, sort of mental consultants, mental performance consultants. My background kind of goes from both sport and exercise to clinical and counseling and then kind of merges. And so when I, when I want to get to know athletes, you know, depending on how important they identify this tool, then yeah, we may look at, at using, uh, you know, some of the, the big five tools like the Neo and, uh, and really unpacking kind of those personality traits. But all that does is provide kind of an initial lens, right? And, and then it helps me ask really some targeted questions because ultimately what comes down from a trait is, is this global idea of how somebody has interacted with experiences. You can't, you can't define somebody and say, you know, okay, because you've been, you know, you score, um, you know, uh, high on extroversion, but you joined an individual sport that that's why you're demotivated. Like that's yeah. a pretty simplistic connection yeah. to why they're, they feel demotivated and, and it's overly simplistic. So it's important to do it ethically. It's important to do it transparently with the, with the person in mind to ensure that they understand why you're doing what you're doing. And so to me, like if I get that opportunity or when I get that opportunity, I look at the foundational level personality I look at sort of how those adaptations have occurred over time. And then I look at the kind of the, like those trait type behaviors. And then I look at role specific stuff. So, you know, you talked about, you know, maybe we're again, jump it a little bit, <laughs> but like that, almost that alter ego is like you have an athlete who, you know, is, is, you know, super highly agreeable. Uh, that might be not necessarily a favorable trade in a highly, highly competitive sport because they're super interested in making sure everybody else, oh, you go ahead. Oh, no, you go. Oh, it's just so great. You know, oh, good notes. Oh, this is so nice. I just feel so good about you. And you're like, <laughs> this is a cutthroat competition. You got to push it. Right. And they don't like it. Right. They're not going to tell you that. And so I've actually had a number of athletes who, you know, coaches will challenge them. They'll say, you need to be more aggressive and they viscerally hate that word. They're not that way. That's right. not how they're going to be. And so that to help them understand that personality wise is to almost remove the aggression and reframe it. Like look at, okay, so what other words can we associate with this fit more with you? And, you know, I've had athletes come up with assertive. I've had athletes come up with belonging. Um, mm -hmm. I had a great athlete that I worked with a years ago who, uh, they couldn't stand uh, like competition. They hated competition, but they were very, very, very talented. Mm. And so, like almost to the point of breaking down in tears at the at the you know at the start of the race. And you know, we we sat down and we started looking at it. Like, okay, so like, how do we look at this differently? And the athlete said, like, I I hate loathe competition. And like the coach is like, you you we will win every <laughs> competition. Like this is ridiculous. That's and, so interesting. And it was just like a, like a headbutting contest. And so when I sat down with the athlete, we, we talked about, okay, like, you know, why is practice differently? Why is practice different? And they said like, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm training with people. Why is the race any different? And they just kind of looked at it like, I guess it isn't really, yeah. you know, you're, you're seeing this cutthroat thing you're supposed to project into the situation and you hate it. And, you know, instead, this person ended up going to the next race, you know, and this is a very high level competitor, like super bubbly, relaxed, excited, like wanted to meet people, like, to, you know, talk about like, how was your experience? What's your best, you know, event, those kinds of things. And they absolutely annihilated the field. 
and you know they were super happy, uh, elated, excited for everybody, and like congratulating. And like this is just a concept that they never even imagined that they were free to do. And so, like you know, a coach comes back. It's like okay, that's the kind of aggression we need. And I just said like there's a word that's not going to fly with your athlete. There's a really important dynamic that has to occur there. And you got to find out what that athlete needs to hear from you instead of you just telling the athlete you need them to do. And so there's a real minimization of understanding of the athlete, minimization of the autonomy of the athlete, projection of what the sport needs from the athlete, and really not understanding the psychology of the athlete. And, you know, it, it doesn't take much, you know, when, number one, when the athlete trusts you, but number two, you know, athletes know themselves very, very well. Right. Like in, in, in your sport, like how much time do you have to just be introspective? <laughs> like maybe what, too- what during the activity? <laughs> yeah. Way too much. <laughs> yeah. You're on the saddle for like 20 hours a day. Yeah. Way too much introspection. <laughs> it's just for this neurotic guy, <laughs> way too much introspection. <laughs> yeah. That's why I wear headphones all the time, man. Got to cut out the voices. Deliberate thing, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man, that's funny. Yeah, because is it's funny because the the um, the the bike packing races I've been to, I've only done three. I scratched on one, but the uh, the camaraderie and the vibe, it's just like, and there's no money, right? There's you're not paying to go. uh, There's no money at the end. There's no entry fee, and uh, it sets it up for just kind of like you know you're just riding with all your friends except some friends will get there before you, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And generally when Those you, aren't friends. Yeah, right. And generally when you get to the end, um, yeah. they may be there. Or the last one I did, there was nobody there. It was in midnight in my hometown. And it's just like, yay me, yay. And it's, yeah. you know, it's just the nature of the sport. So I can kind of relate to the, uh, the, the competitiveness of, like, I was never a competitive guy, definitely not a team sport guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can totally relate to that. But at the same time, you know, like just what you said, oh, you're just going out for a ride with your buddies or you're going for a swim, you know, with your friends. Just think of it as training, but you're going to go 110% rather than the 75 you're usually training at kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And so basically it just comes down to mindset. I mean, not basically. So yeah. I'm not trying to diminish everything, but yeah. but mindset is huge, right? So. But yeah. Yeah. You're, I think you're right. Like follow that up a little bit because when you, and this is what I like the idea of unpacking something is, you know, too often we use we use the catchphrases and the catchphrases are used to pique somebody's uh, interest in something, but not a real true understanding. Um, you know, I, I've I've done this for years, and I've said this to coaches like in two thousand in two thousand and eight. Uh, I think I started asking coaches, and I think I ended around twenty thirteen. That just asking every coach that I worked with, like, what does mental toughness mean to you? Um, and I got, I got, I got hundreds of different definitions. And so if you're involved in developmental sport and you're using the concept of mental toughness, like we got to be more mentally tough, but if I'm using it differently than the coach who's also coaching that athlete in a different sport and that next coach uses, okay, like mental toughness is key here, but the athlete now has two different definitions of it. You know, to me, that's like the, the like it's almost like the definitive definition of, of English language, like two, two, and two. You know, right. explain to a seven-year-old what two, two, and two means. Like, you have two apples, uh, also people are with you, and, uh, you know, you're going to the club. 
what? It's all the same damn word. Like, and that's, that's the problem uh, with a lot of psychological constructs is that we use the concept of it. But then when you really unpack it, like use the idea of mindset, like mindset itself is interesting because Carol Dweck in her work around mindset talked about maximizing the importance of effort uh, and, the, and the fixed in growth mindsets, you know, and, and what came out of that, actually, I just read a great study on it, is that they challenged uh, a lot of Dweck's original work. And unfortunately, some of that work was, was not kind of, quote unquote, backed up, not because the, the science wasn't sound, but because it was a misinterpretation of how to apply the concept. So it's not either or. <laughs> I have a fixed or growth mindset. Well, I have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. Well, I'm going to have a growth mindset. That means that I'm going to try real hard. A fixed mindset is that I believe that, that I have a fixed amount of ability. And if I reach that ability, I can no longer grow. Right. Okay. So like if I apply that to every single thing in an individual's life, they're not going to have any congruence because they'll say, you know, say a 16 year old athlete says, well, like that's not true for me for sport. Like I'll train my butt off. Uh, and, 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 but I just, I don't like school that much, but like, you know, but like when I go to work, like. I work my butt off at work and then I'll say, okay, so you work your butt off in sport, but do you work your butt off for all the concepts of sport? Like, what do you mean? I said, well, like, you know, strength training, mental training. Yeah. I don't really identify. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And and all of a sudden mindset gets lost in this, this, this definition of either or, and really what it is, is it's, it's not meant to be this thing. It's meant to be this thing. And when it's this thing, now, when I strengthen mindset, I'll point this thing at whatever I want, and I will have a growth mindset for it. Right. That's where that misinterpretation, like my effort matters. My effort matters. My effort matters. My effort matters. And if I get 66% in a class, I feel defeated. No, no. If my effort, if I put in maximum effort, that's what Dweck has talked about all the time, is if you put a maximum effort at 66%, you'd be proud of that effort. You internalize it. Uh, a concept to it is it's not, you've not defined your ability. You want to work harder. Whereas if I try, but don't try and I don't study very hard and I get 66%, well, I've got a preordained excuse, right? Well, I didn't try very hard. That's a fixed mindset. Right. And so just that one concept of mindset, you know, that idea, then people use grit, the idea or concept of grit as mindset. And then they use mental toughness as mindset. Then they use hardiness as mindset. Like it's a lot of different things. And so it's, it, it does, you're right, it comes down to a mindset. But that's why my fascination in the field is to try to understand the, the study of one. Me and you sitting and talking about what your current mindset looks like so that we can strengthen that mindset. That's it. Like it's not looking for deficits. It must be so tough though because, <clears throat> again, everyone's just a spectrum, right? Everyone's just so complex like to nail down what someone's needs actually are to get a positive mindset must just be gargantuan. It must be really difficult. Oh, you there? Yeah. We kind of have a bad connection. Hey. Okay. Um, Give me a second. I'm going to call you right back. Okay. Okay. Yep. Oh, technical issues, man. It's it's so it's you know what's crazy about it is um 
as soon as I lost your image, the conversation changes. Like it's, it's, that's why I have to do it on video. I have to do it on, I have to see the person I'm talking to because it's, yeah, it's crazy how it changes. Not that it almost, not that this is harsh, but it, not that it becomes less interesting, but it's hard to be, it's hard to focus when I can't see you and watch your hands and because you're explaining concepts. And I was listening to a Sam Harris podcast today, actually. Mm. It was was about, um, I'm such a dummy. I can't remember the the author of this book, but she was talking about how uh, just when people communicate and they, they, they gesture, um, that's, that's like a base biological innate human thing. And even kids who are born blind will use their hands to speak. It's wow. Crazy. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Isn't that crazy? That. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. Like you'll watch a yeah. kid and he'll be, he'll, he'll be explaining thing. He can't see he has no concept of, of reality, yeah. like a visual reality, like you or I yeah. have, but he'll still emote with his hands and, yeah. and use expressions and stuff. It's anyway, it's crazy. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. <laughs> so the mindset thing. Um, yeah. Cause, cause um, I've, I've always been a huge proponent of positive mindset for completing these long distance and long, long distance races. Cause <clears throat> again, I'm no like Olympic athlete, but I think human, the human body is capable of so much yeah. provided, provided you have the, the right mindset. And um, I, I think it's so important to, to, I was talking to a lady on Instagram today. She reached out to me for, um, for uh, advice about uh, tires and we got to talking mm-hmm. and um, she was saying, Oh, I was going to do this race, but I don't feel like I'm ready. And then I went to her Instagram page and she's a roadie and it looks like from all the pictures, it's like, I went, I, I went, I, I messaged her back. I said, you know what? You ride your bike a lot and you, you have, <laughs> you probably have a fantastic aerobic base. You know, yeah. you can totally do this. And I said, you know what? It's not, the, the races aren't fast. Like for the, you know, for the weekend warrior type guy, it's like, you know, you're rolling maybe 17K an hour, like average over, mm-hmm. you know, a thousand K. And she admitted, she goes, yeah, I found it really hard to go out there as a roadie and just dial it back. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're mm-hmm. not going out and spinning 99, you know, RPM and RPMs, like just yes. giving her, it's just, it's, it's not it. It's more like, having the mindset and trying to stay positive over 20, 40, 60 hours without yeah. sleep. Like, you know, it's, it's more of a mental game to me. And even someone who, um, I interviewed, um, Nat rainbow, she was a lantern rouge on the tour divide. Yeah. And, and she basically got into it seven months before the, before this, you know, 4,000 kilometer race to Mexico. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, she rolled into some place and she was like, Oh, you know, and they were like, Oh, you're your last place. And she goes, Oh no, there's a bunch of people behind me. And she's like, Oh no, they all scratched. You're in last place. So yeah. And she finished it and, and she yeah. overcame so much adversity and it's all just, it was for her totally mental, yeah. positive mindset. Wow. You know, wow. she had never wild camped, you know, like slept in a ditch on a road, you know, worried about bears and cats and all that stuff she comes from the UK. And, but her mindset was so amazing and so positive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that got her to the end. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, you're talking, Steve, and you're saying like, you know, the, almost you said like in a, in, in a, maybe, you know, maybe in a positive way, but also maybe in this, this realistic way of, so well, I'm not an Olympic athlete, but 
you know, given, given the structure of the, of the journeys and the jaunts that you decide to undertake and the training that's required to do it and, and the, the mental endurance that's, that's necessary. Like we joked about introspection, but you know, that, that is some people's worst enemy is time. Yeah. You know, whereas someone, someone else, it's their best friend, you know, is they get that kind of time. And, you know, you mentioned the concept of flow and, and in that, in those moments, it's, it's not necessarily going to be about whether the person is, is the best athlete, so to speak, physiologically It's whether the best athlete psychologically can apply those physical tools. Right. And, and the application of those physical tools, you know, you see it at the Olympics all the time. Like, you know, the exception of a few, like, you know, like you say in bolts of the world, the rest of the field's pretty close. And so even at the highest levels, it's the application of the, the mental side that gets those physical tools mobilized at the right time, at the right pace, in the right place. Right. And so that to me is that, like I always say, like everybody's an athlete, just not everybody's training. Right. And, yeah. you know, to, to overcome something, uh, you know, am I ready? The, the, the person you were speaking with today is like, am I ready for this? I'm not sure I'm ready for this. Uh, like, I feel like the urge to just completely unpack that comment. <laughs> <laughs> do, it, do it. Well, I was like, I wanted this. I didn't say it. I yeah. tried lightly, but it's like, you're yeah. ready. You're totally ready. It's yeah. you're telling yourself you're not ready. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's that, it's that, uh, negative self-talk. Oh, I'm yeah. not ready. And, uh, but if you just did it, if you just went out and, and just did it, mm-hmm. you'd have a blast. And, yeah. you know, they were talking about sleep deprivation and stuff. And it's like, you don't have to not sleep. I mean, set a, set a reasonable goal, ride, ride 18 hours and sleep five or six and get up and ride again. And oftentimes like those, the, the people who are winning the tour divide, they're sleeping. They're not, they're not, wow. not sleeping. Yeah. And <clears throat> some of them get a lot of sleep, you know, five, six hours, but, but they get up and they're just in a better, they're just in better condition because they had a great sleep to hit it harder throughout the day. Right. So, you know, not only do they have maybe a higher aerobic base because of all the time they get to train, but then they also, they can move so quickly across the environment. And then they know all the little tricks like, you know, eating on the bike. How do you take your jacket off when you're still riding? Right. Just don't stop. Cause every time you stop to do something, it's like 10 seconds here, 30 seconds there. And over the course of a two week race, that could be hours and hours and hours. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say it all adds up. So, um, and, and the, the people that generally, um, you know, are at the pointy end of the stick of these races are just the most positive, chill, um, Mm. they, they train hard, but they're just, it's just their mindset. They're just, they're just like, Oh, I'm going to go for a bike ride, you know, awesome. You know, and they hit it hard and they just have great, they just have great, um, mental attitude. I think that's what stands out with those guys and girls. Well, you know, and I think you think you hit home on something and the reason why a lot of the literature, the personality psychology is it's, it's fascinating in a way that when we read it, things resonate for us, but like it it comes down in those circumstances to like, okay, so now I want to figure out, you know, if I went and took, you know, 50 people who completed that race and I said, I'm going to look for, you know, uh, consistencies in personality profiles. I'm probably not going to find them. You know, I, I might find certain traits that stand out, you know, like, you know, there's, there's a certain level of conscientiousness that might need to be there, but it's not going to be consistent. There'll be too many 
there'd be too many outliers in the statistics, right? You know, whereas neuroticism, you know, uh, you, you'd think that most people in a race like that would be low on anxiety. That's, that's, that's anecdotal observation, right? Like I can, I can fear it. I can theorize what I'd be able to see, but in reality, I, I probably wouldn't be able to come up with a working profile for the ideal bikepacking, uh, uh, competitor. And, and, you know, personality psychologists look for that in sport for so long. And what is that personality profile? You know, there was a, there was some research that showed kind of like uh, high and everything and low in neuroticism was really the conscious um, profile. That was the best profile. And then <clears throat> when they unpacked the research, it wasn't the profile. And so like, that's the personality side is like, okay, now we understand you. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Not understand 150 people in order to say to the rest of the population, and we can generalize this research and say, this is the profile that you need to have in order to do this sport really well. That was one of the questions I was going to ask actually is kind yes. of, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you saw that up there kind of like, yeah. What, what are the, what's a common personality trait of, of an, of a, a high end athlete and there doesn't yeah. seem to be one. Yeah. Yeah. That's really but interesting. I think, I think like there's, and, and that's where temperament comes in is like you've got someone who might score high in emotionality um, or high neuroticism. And, and when you kind of unpack neuroticism, you're looking at like depression, self-consciousness, vulnerability, um, you know, like those kinds of like a hostility or something like that. Like um, you're looking at a lot of those traits that might be antithetical to coachability, but that doesn't suggest that they're going to be a poor athlete. Right. Right. They might be abrasive and, and highly emotional with their coach. But if their coach understood that about them, then they might be able to figure out a better way to communicate with them. You know, if I have a coach who's like that and an athlete that's like that, I need both of those people to understand that your strategy for getting the message across is, is not effective or less effective because of how an athlete is projecting. But I couldn't say that that athlete's going to be unsuccessful because they score high on emotionality and this sport suggests otherwise. And, and so like, you know, we see this, like we saw this in football, like, you know, you, you, you gotta be angry. You gotta kinda, you know, you gotta wanna be a little bit violent. You gotta be, that's like, you know, and for so long, even myself, like I played football for, for a long time trying to be angry so much so that it kind of bleed and bled out into my life. Mm. And I realized that I'm just not an angry person, like not at all. And, you know, you know, I have bouts of anger or explosiveness or whatever because I'd score high on emotionality or neuroticism. But that doesn't mean I'm angry. And and when I realized that as a player, it was two years after I retired. <laughs> and oh, and I tried to be angry going back and playing an alumni game. And I was like, man, I'm not angry. And I love <laughs> this play. This is so happy. And I'm enjoying myself and I'm laughing. And, and, you know, my coach, who at the time was our quarterback for the alumni game, uh, he stopped and he said, what are you laughing at, man? <laughs> You're soft. You're soft. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't even know, Brad. And he's like, whatever. So we just went at it. And I had a phenomenal game, right? It's something you realize after you played that, you know, you, you tried to take on a persona that wasn't you. And it was just constantly competing for attention, inner attention. And, you know, like even friends of mine growing up, like you were a fierce competitor. Yeah, I'm a very fierce competitor. But I, I could have been more fierce in a way that, that was – you know, the, the leader that I was identified with too, because I was highly agreeable and very, you know, 
conscientious for sport, but not so much for, for, you know, school and things like that at the time. That's the kind of balance and malleability that we, if we become fixated on like, well, I'm not conscientious. So if I try hard at something, uh, I'm not going to do very well. Like, and that's what Carol Dweck's standing at the door going, Hey, not true. <laughs> stop, 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 stop instilling right. this in people. Um, and then it becomes, you know, an identity, right? I'll try hard at this, but I won't be good at that. You right. know, and that's not true. It's, it's you who can project that. So I think that's, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the identity tool I, I've used that, um, like before I did the last race, um, I was super scared and I was like talking to my wife about it and I was like, I'm fucking scared. Like I'm <laughs> super, super scared. <clears throat> and, um, she kind of, she snapped me out of it by saying, well, yeah, but the, the thing you did last year was way longer and you finished that. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I did mm-hmm. do that. And then I found that once I kind of settled down, once, once you actually get out there, yeah. um, that, you know, like I say, I think I'm pretty high in neuroticism, but as soon as I get out there, I, it's kind of, it's almost like all that noise and all that static that's in your everyday life just kind of goes away, yeah. you know? And there was nothing really, especially, and I, I talked on the podcast with a couple of writers about ego and, mm. you know, it's, it's good not to have one, right? Especially mm-hmm. when you're out in an environment like that, because you're so vulnerable, like as soon as you're out there by yourself and it's yeah. midnight and it's, it's dark and you're semi, you're kind of lost and you can't be neurotic. You can't lose your <laughs> shit. Like you have to kind of like, okay, what am I going to do? And that's, that's what I find really, um interesting about these these journeys is that they're they're calming in a way mm, you know you, you go as hard as you want to go like yeah. you yeah. know you're kind of racing yourself really in a way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you have goals in mind but at the same time it's just like it's just so so calming it's, it's a very weird mm-hmm. for me for for me it is it's almost uh it's almost therapeutic to go out mm-hmm. and see things coming back can be kind of tough but okay Okay. Oh, just because you're, you know, again, like I say, you you feel so calm and you're out there. And then when you come back, um, you know, it's back to work. It's back to getting right. up at six in the morning every day where, you know, I might have slept for five hours over a 60 hour period on a race, but it seems yeah. doable. <clears throat> but you would never be able to do that in life. Like you couldn't yeah. not sleep and just get up yeah. and, and not be an a-hole <laughs> at work, right? You just be an <laughs> asshole all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but for some reason it works when you're out in the bush on a bike i don't know <laughs> but yeah coming back it's it can be tough especially if it's a longer trip and you come back and it's just because you're, you're so used to living out of your bags you know mm-hmm. food water shelter food water shelter and that's all that really matters yeah. yeah yeah so when you come come back it's like okay well you know i gotta i gotta go shop for food and i've gotta you know do this and take the kids to school and do yeah. this and fix that and blah 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 it's just all the it's like a break in a way, yeah. even though it's punishing, it's like <laughs> to, to go on some of these races, it's, it's a break. Yeah. In a lot of ways. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Mindset. I, I found, yeah, just, just trying to stay positive, you mm-hmm. know, like no matter what's mm-hmm. going on, it's just trying to like, okay, well, here's a problem. I'll have to deal with that. Yeah. You know, and yeah, probably, probably would be different if you were, you know, maybe a sponsored athlete with, you know. Mm-hmm. You get ad revenue or, you know, people are supporting you financially or, you know, the, those pressures, those extrinsic mm-hmm. pressures must be just, yeah. 
Well, they can, right? Like, you know, that's that's what that's one of the sub theories of self determination theory is, is what's called organismic integration theory. And OIT is fascinating because people think that you either have intrinsic or extrinsic motivation, and you really don't. Like, you have intrinsic motivation, which is like the pure love of something. But the second you add, and I tell us, is like the second you add evaluation, comparison, competition, or otherwise outcomes, it cannot be intrinsic by, by definition. Um, and so as a result, there's actually four levels or layers, depending on the theory you're looking at, four levels or layers of extrinsic motivation, um, basically going from like low self-determination to high self-determination. The highest form of self-determination being intrinsic motivation. So if I have four different layers of extrinsic motivation, you know, you have external, interjected, identified, and integrated, then, then it's about identifying where an individual, how an individual views a circumstance or a situation, mm. and what variables or factors are actually at play in the situation. And that situation is multidimensional because the person still has to interact with it. They still have to be you know, there's the, there's the overlay of, of basic needs is like, am I autonomous in this circumstance? Like that, that sponsored athlete, like people think, oh man, that'd be the greatest thing in the world to be a sponsored athlete. But now everybody gets a say in your life. Um, you know, when you do what you do, how you do it and when you should show up and whether you like yeah. it or not. And so people are like, well, I make money to do something I love. But the second that someone says, well, here, I'll give you $25,000 to do this. Then what you love bumps out of intrinsic motivation. By nature. That's so interesting. And now I go and I might actually lose intrinsic motivation. I might might be going less and less and less self-determined based on the pressures that I identify for this this controlled motivator. Like, you know, someone says, Well, here's an incentive. And Daniel Pink's stuff is interesting on on how monetary incentives actually don't work. Um that that if they provide like so here, you know, if you do this performance, I'll give you a ten thousand dollar bonus by by nature then then i have more motivation to do something not for the love or pure joy or, or competence of something but now i have something that might actually be competing with my competence mm. but unless i've chosen to do so regardless of that ten thousand dollar bonus that's autonomous like i can still be autonomously motivated but i'm closer to a controlled form of motivation based on the fact that this is at play it isn't it's overly simplistic to think that that money is the only thing but people ask all the time, like, well, why did that guy who, you know, plays, you know, pro football or something who, you know, had a great rookie season and a great sophomore season and, you know, comes into his third year in the league and, and they say, well, we're going to rewrite your contract. We're going to give you five years for $80 million. And then he just falls off a cliff. Well, that needs been satisfied. And, and in some cases, his motivation has actually been usurped because now he's supposed to be playing and motivated for this high level paycheck. But in reality, what he, what he loved or what he was driven for may not necessarily have been that it might've been his family. It might've been his, uh, you know, um, you know, getting his, uh, uh, getting his degree after he's graduated and the $500,000 signing bonus and, you know, $40,000 salary isn't going to get it done. And so, by doing that, now you give them $80 million and that satisfied me. Boom. No longer a motivator. This isn't going to drive them. Yeah. And too often you see that. You see that professional athlete whose 
whose who's love or drive for something just dissolves because that need has been met. Like, well, now I don't have to pay for school. This is awesome. I've got my check. Boom. And now the drive has now moved down to a lower form of self-determination. As a result, now it's a control motivator. I own you. You have, you know, you can make 80 million bucks, but here are all the things I need from you. And you're not delivering, so we're going to get rid of you. Right. And, and as a coach, you could actually refocus that lens for him or her Absolutely. by saying like, oh, I can't believe it. I'm, I'm, I'm making all this money and I feel this pressure. And you could say, wow, just think of the great things you can do with your family for that, with that money. You can, like what you said, you can go to school, you can do all these yeah. different things. And that would be a good way to refocus someone's energy and keep their motivation. Like, I, I think I read even, even given some given, giving someone praise can undermine their intrinsic motivators, which I find crazy. And I don't know if that's more prevalent in children because yeah. you and I talked about our kids quite a bit. And, uh, it, it just seems like, you know, like you want to praise your kids when they do good stuff. But no, knowing this, I'm wondering if this is even a deeper, uh, wired, uh, thing for kids. Like if, if you pray, if you praise them too much, just like, you know, Jasper with his bike, right. It's like, dude, you're yeah. such a great, you know, I'm just trying to motivate him and, 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 yeah. and not, not push him, but just, you can do it. You're so great. And then he's like, Oh, I'm so not interested dad because yeah. you just you keep talking about it <laughs> i wish like your was your boy in swimming yeah. right swimming, yeah. let's go swimming la, la. no no i'm not interested i just yeah, want so inter- <laughs> it's just so crazy so I've, I've i've really tried to dial back um mm-hmm. any type of comment on on that kind of thing and just Re- yeah. redirect that steve <laughs> if, if you're praising effort you're praising effort in failure or success regardless because if they put effort in you praise the effort right uh, and, and that's where the challenge comes is we usually praise the outcome, you know, good job or, Hey, you got to learn something from that. Well, people are pretty quick to figure out that I didn't get the good stuff from this, but I got the good stuff from this. And if I'm not doing enough of this anymore, which you see so often in school and sports, things get harder Then nobody's praising the outcome anymore. There's less and less and less positive reinforcement. So why do it? And that's really the driver for praise is. It, the, the praise itself is not necessarily a bad thing. It becomes either informational or it becomes controlling. And it becomes contingent on one's outcomes, not the process. And mm. so w- when we're hearing the term, you know, we got to trust the process, trust the process, trust the process. You're asking somebody to trust the process, but in some cases praising the outcome, not the process. <laughs> and so they get into trouble with it. Humans are a mess. We're a mess. <laughs> We are, we are. It's crazy. <laughs> no, the more like I, I've been kind of interested in psychology for a while, but uh, mm. but just it's it's I don't know, it's crazy. We're just we're so complex. I just what works for one doesn't work for the other, and this theory and that it's it's un- unbelievable. Well, and, so, and uh, finding and, and again, see, like the, the pervasiveness of of basic needs is has been shown, and this is why I'm such a fan of it is that it's been shown across cultures. It's been shown across genders. It's been shown across age. It's been shown across race. It's been shown like, and so it's not one of these things that was for, you know, 580 college students in an upper Northeast university. It's been something that's been shown across the globe. And so when we have the idea and the concept of autonomy, you think even a child, like, and and for for a child, it's, you know, the initial teaching is, you know, what, what looks right. And when they try, you praise the effort. 
um, if if what they've done is is good, and then you offer the, the the positive praise by saying "good job," we haven't acknowledged the effort. Was it that they did a good job at? And then from there, the 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 next question for it to be external or interjected, um, interjected is about the alleviation of guilt and or or letting something like the the, the person identifies something important about the behavior, but they don't necessarily internalize the positive of the behavior. They they reduce the the negative affect or less than favorable affect. So if they don't do something, then they feel guilty. And we see this in, in the, I call this the mom look, you know, when, when the mom looks at the kid and they do the, <laughs> and, the and the kid goes, oh. they, they, they may not actually know what it is that they've done wrong. They just feel guilty about what it is that they've done. Yeah. And so they do something to alleviate the guilt. And in that case, it's probably quite a positive and, and almost a compensatory behavior. Which again is is a is a is a shift towards a higher level of self determination, but still a very controlled form of motivation. Because then the child may be trying to do that behavior in order for mom to be pleased. And so if they don't get that feedback, then they're not sure whether mom is pleased or not, and they begin to feel guilty or amp up the behavior. And and then if so you that's s- what it is. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> Why are you kids so crazy? <laughs> Why? We told you not to do it, but you do it more and more. It's nuts. Crazy. And so to praise the effort in something so obtuse or difficult, uh, you come out and say, like, yeah, I finished that. And you ask the question, well, how'd you finish it? And then the person goes, why? You know what what it was? And they start unpacking it. There's There's the cognitive restructuring that occurs. Right? So it's not me noticing and reinforcing what was done well. It's not me saying, you know, was that really done well? And, and sort of having them do something again to alleviate the guilt. It's now about them recognizing something that they've done well and then providing the, the initial sounding board because that's the shift from control to autonomous motivation is being able to say like, you know, self-identified uh, success and, and then an immediate prompt. It's like, okay, so what was it that, that really drove that? You know, I said, well, I tried hard. What was it that you tried hard at? You know, what was difficult in there that you really required a lot of effort? Like, well, it was these three things that, and now you got a person who's starting to internalize the success and the effort for that success. And now you've shifted, you help them shift from something that previously may have been a controlled motivator to a more autonomous motivator. And you can use that in the case of a, uh, where they're, they're not successful in something. Yeah, you can kind of absolutely. shift that the same way. It's like, well... Why don't, why don't think, why don't you think you were successful? Like, or what wasn't, what was it that you weren't at? Right. Like if you ah, keep it on the, the what on scale, the like the why is sort of an existential question, but the what is like, what behaviorally, what cognitively, what affectively didn't you do? Um, because they'll answer like a, a behavioral question. Like, what was it that you, that you really struggle with that, that made you unsuccessful? Like, what was it that you were challenged by? What was it that you, it's like, God, I couldn't get past this one moment. Oh, right. It's not me coming in and giving them feedback about what they weren't successful mm-hmm. for. And here's what you've got to change. That makes me feel really good about having observed something that they didn't do very well. And they fosters dependence. And but you it, could probably get it out of them by yeah, unpacking absolutely. kind of the, yeah. so yeah. how, how does um, social networking affect these motivators? Ah, <laughs> the, you know, it, it's, 
there's so many multi layers to it. Um, because it's a snapshot, uh, you know, people take it as, as they almost have a bias for fact, right? Um, and there's certain degrees of that biases that, that are going to drive a decision. So if someone's, you know, say someone's training really hard and they go to their social media and they scroll through Instagram and they see where another athlete is training and, and they have a, a, you know, a cool photo and the coach is there and then they post the workout and they go, ah, I'm not doing well. But that's completely inaccurate because they have no fact that that connects to anything that the athlete's actually done, right? You know, I can walk by seven motivational slogans and I can say, snap, 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 snap. And I can have completely antithetical slogans on my page. And I say, you've got to believe in this. You know, like I, I dissected in one of my classes, um, there's a, a video uh, that, that hit YouTube that was like, you know, so many people just loved it. It's, um, I won't, I won't say the name, but you know, it, it was, it was very like when you really looked at the dialogue in the video, um, it was meant to be the most motivational video ever. And when you really listen to it, it's actually quite poor. <laughs> um, it's talking about like killing people, but then respecting them. And, you know, it's talking like, and this is an amateur sport motivational video and you know this is a, a person who's put a lot a great deal of, of effort into contriving a speech and you know it's its purpose is is completely off right and it serves a, a almost a competitive purpose to an athlete who is already prepared for competition and now they're almost over the top right right but then we post at the bottom like they crushed their opponent like that tells me nothing right but it motivates a bunch of coaches to go, okay, that's what I've got to do. Like, no, it's not what you have to do. It's a terrible thing. But because there's 11 million posts, <laughs> there's a there's pressure to go and, and try to do something like that. Yeah, like I just find sometimes, you know, I don't know what it is, maybe the, the end of the end of the summer thing, but just my motivation's so low. And mm. sometimes I just I can't look, I can't even look at social networking. Mm -hmm. Like it just it yeah. It's, it's negative. Yeah. It's so negative. It just doesn't motivate me at all. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's a symptom of, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I've talked about it a few times on social networking thing on, uh, on this podcast. And uh, oftentimes it's, it just seems to be anti, anti-motivating, kind of trolling kind of stuff. Anyway, this is mm -hmm. a bit of a tangent. But um, would, th would that be introjected um, yeah. motivators? Yeah, interjected and and in, and again. So if someone's unaware of that, the the it can be a positive pressure, right? Like it can be that catalyst to like, oh, I came home from work and I went online and I saw, you know, say they're 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 exercising lots and they follow a couple of posts and they look and they like that, you know, that one sort of media post and they see that that she's worked out today and here's her workout and you're like ah, and then they get going and right and so then they assume that that's a motivator. Um, the challenge becomes unpacking that in the moment is to, to, you know, what was it a motivating for? Was, were you more motivated, you know, and, and I think this is very unique to the person. Um, you know, were they motivated by a body type that they want to see themselves for? Were they motivated because they like the, you know, the, the hardcore aggression of the video or the post? Were they motivated to avoid uh, the, the, the trolling guilt, um, 
you know, you see so many times like people on their, on their fitness journeys, they, they, uh, they, uh, put it all out to the fitness world or put it all out to the, to the social media world uh, as a sort of a level of accountability. But that's why I don't like that term is accountability can actually be, uh, less than positive, right? Like it's, it's almost like guilt driving behavior. Like I did it because I told people I would do it in the world. And now these people all follow me. And now they're asking me like, Hey, did you get your exercise in? Did you go for your run? Like, did you get your, you know, your 40 K TT in today? What was your time? And it's like, yeah, no, I totally did. Yeah. Like it was great. But then if you shut it off and the person's like, you know, I fucking hated that ride. Like I hate, like they're not honest. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. And in some cases, maybe they are being honest, but that's the, the that's the, the, the veil of social media is that you can't tell. And so it's very, imper- it's very impersonal and it's meant to be personal. And that's really hard, I think, for people to navigate because is it, is it a controlled motivator? Do I come home and that's what gets me going? Because then in the absence of that, I won't get going. Mm-hmm. I've got to continue to find something that's internal to me and it can't necessarily be just one simple goal, especially external or sort of socially approved of kind of goal. I suppose it's like your own search for meaning, right? You need to find meaning yeah. in the things that you do. And if, yeah. if you're not finding meaning in it, then, yeah, you know, what's kind of, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. And even negative meaning, right? Like that, that, well, and guilt, guilt's hard because I had the, I have the conversation with bodybuilders and, you know, fitness participants around the cheat day. Uh, and the cheat day is not a cheat day as far as like, you know, I got six days of like really determined behavior and then the seventh day is off. If I line that up on a social, uh, on a self-determination theory continuum, on an OIT continuum, the most most self-determined they are is actually the cheat day. So how's that? When they, Oh, because, because they're the most autonomous. I'm going to do what I want today. Absolutely. You're like, son of a, but, and, and when you see that, they go, the most controlled that they are, the most externally motivated they are is by this thing out here to follow the nutrition plan. And so I've never internalized that as something that I do. I want to do. It's something that I have to do. And now when I get that seventh day off, it's something I want to do. But what that gets me back to is the guilt that I feel for the autonomous choice that I made and now I'm back to a controlled motivator. <laughs> so I'm never really on the autonomous side of motivation. That's I'm so really funny. only on the controlled side of motivation. So no cheat days, never no cheat days. Well, when you remove the guilt, then they realize they don't need the cheat day. <laughs> and then they're like, wait a minute, this is like cool. And there's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no, uh, there's no anticipation of, there's no like hanging on, wait, not go till that cheat day. There's just <laughs> the behavior, right? The right. motivation. And they really understand their own motivation for it. That's so interesting. It's very interesting to see. Yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about alter ego. Do you, do you do that mm-hmm. with any of your athletes? In, in a way? Yes. I don't usually use the term alter ego, but like when you say you have somebody who, um, you know, is trade anxious. So like they may actually be, you know, bordering on, on distressing and clinically anxious and yet they're expected to perform quite often. And in some cases it's not just about, um, you know, just shunting this anxiety. It's about developing a relationship with the anxiety. And when they start to get 
under, uh, understanding for the anxiety, it almost feels like they've, they're not themselves. They become, you know, uh, uh, a friend with it. And so for, for my, you know, purposes in, in practice, depending on the developmental age of the athlete, you know, I'll look at it as like, who's writing your story, you or anxiety? And they start to really write their own story. And to them, it's like an alter ego. Like they, they become, you know, I want to be assertive. I want to be, you know, this is what I want to be. This is how I want to be. This is, you know, I want to be super confident. Well, it makes you great. And then they go through a confidence inventory and they may not fully believe in that, but I ask them that question. It's like, you know, like you say you want to play this well, or you want to ride this fast. Uh, you want to ride aggressively, but you know, do you have to be on the bike, you know, white knuckling it the whole time? Or can you experience a sense of calm? And they go like, well, I don't think those two things fit. Yeah. And then you start getting, you know, get talking to them a little bit and they're able to kind of, you know, they, they adopt kind of the duck mentality, right? Like calm up top, just like mad below. And, you know, if you look at them, they can smile, they're, they're relaxed, they feel good. And yet they're absolutely crushing the lots and they just don't, they don't have to buy into this whole thing. Type A, all go, no quit. They start to adopt, you know, and, and, you know, whether it's mindfulness or hardiness or mental toughness or whatever, you know, whatever umbrella we look at, you know, that, that helps them start to shift that whole entire persona, I guess. So really um, they are kind of creating an, uh, yeah. a, a different identity yeah. or maybe just focusing that identity. Cause I mean, deep down they're an athlete, yeah. you know, regardless of what their personality is, Yeah. but when yeah. they're performing, they need to kind of turn it on. Right. Yeah. A little bit. Hmm, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. With your athletes. Uh, do you guys talk about sleep? Do you have a sleep regimen with your athletes or? Mm-hmm. I do. Um, I actually listened to a, a podcast uh, with a, a very well-respected performance psychologist by, by the name of Dr. Michael Gervais. He, uh, he spoke with a sleep expert. Uh, he actually published a book. I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, Matt Walker. Yeah. Yeah. Do you got it? I don't have the book, but I've heard oh, him speak yeah. for yeah. like a number of hours about sleep. It's pretty yeah. crazy. It, and, and it's fascinating. You know, and he makes a great point to – um, how antithetical sport um, motivational strategies have been to what the basic principle of us performing well is. You know, you have to, you know, the, the adage, and I, and, I, and I cringe a little bit when I hear it, as, as motivating as it might be, is, you know, if you want to be as successful as you want to breathe, you know, you'll get out there and grind. It's like, yeah, but you need sleep to be successful. <laughs> yeah. you know no way man like you got to grind you got to stay up for 50 hours you got to kill it you got to be and it's like yeah but no actually there's too many studies <laughs> that yeah. show that that's the probably the worst thing that you can do long term now i'm a bit of a hypocrite because i've been doing this now for you know i've had way too much education for my my own part that i've forgotten more than i can ever remember but that's been my journey is like you know two jobs and two degrees and you know, staying up and, and grinding. And then I'm starting to look and I'm like, huh, you know, this isn't making a lot of sense. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I consider this, this level of expert in the field and I'll recommend, okay, so what's your sleep like? And people will talk about like how much they're, how hard they're trying. And then they'll say like, oh, I sleep like shit. <laughs> well, let's start there. Right. 
what does a sleep routine look like for you? What's the quality of sleep? You know, I get questions and, and Dr. Walker looks at, um, you know, what, what the effectiveness of, uh, of some of the tools that are out there and then helping us understand and measure sleep. And um, it becomes such a valuable understanding that, you know, it almost seems wrong to think that, that we could get eight to nine hours of sleep. You know, here the two of us are staying up really late talking, you know, but for a couple of dads, yeah, it's yeah. pretty late. <laughs> exactly. We're killing. It's like right? 10. <laughs> but, but there's, there's an understanding to, to an athlete that, you know, you've got to always be pushing, got to always be pushing, got to always be pushing. And I'll ask, okay, are you pushing your recovery? And, and people will go in the world. No, I don't get it. Like, you know, what's your nutrition like? What's your sleep like? You know, uh, are, are you able to de-stress, you know, decompress? When do you do reflections? Well, I don't do any reflections. How's your sleep? Well, it's shitty. Probably that's when you're doing your reflection, right? You're sleeping and your brain's going and winding up and never letting you engage in any sort of quality REM sleep or even getting into maybe even deep sleep. So the, the idea to me, like, you know, listening to, to Matt's podcast is just like literally an hour and a half of just me nodding. You know, and, and the awakening of it. Um, can athletes achieve great things when they don't rest? Uh, I think your, your sport's proof of that. But would you do it long-term, chronically? Yeah, it's, it's, Probably not. it's always what you can maintain, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, you see that with the athletes that are, I mean, there's, there's some exceptions. Mike Hall was a guy who didn't sleep very much. Yeah. But um, at the same time, um. Yeah, like I said, most of those guys are are sleeping, you know, five, sometimes six hours. Sometimes you'll see posts mm-hmm. where they'll be like, "Oh, I slept in today," and you know, they're still <laughs> killing it, right? And, yeah, so that that's yeah. that's important. I think that's part of the recovery process is sleep. I don't know if there's I don't know if there's time to get nine hours of sleep every day. No. Is there? No, so, certainly not tonight. That's for sure. <laughs> well, the quality of my role when I'm awake might be poor because I've slept three more hours than I have time for. But that's, that's a consequence of our society. Like, you know, the, even the mindfulness stuff that's, that's floating around out there and, and gaining a lot of traction, um, you know, it, you gotta, you gotta kind of laugh at us as a, as a Western society because we're just kind of gaining an understanding of it and applying it. And this is ancient thinking. Yeah. This is not new. Right. And, you know, it's not necessarily transcendent, but, we're, we're not convinced of it unless we see it in, in, you know, podcast form or we see it in, in a, a trendy book from an author that we understand. Right. You know, the, the number of people that know, you know, in the basketball community, that know, John Kabat-Zinn is, is not very high, but a whole lot of people, you know, understand the, the, the author of the mindful athlete because he was the, the sports psych for Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. And he was the mindfulness guru. And like, well, wait a minute here. Like he taught, you know, Zinn taught him. Right. <laughs> and so yet, but we, we, we're almost in this, you know, we hate to see bringing philosophy in this postmodern world of like, we need to digest something only on our terms right. rather than on its terms. And, and I think that's, that's a, a, an oversight for a lot of us in trying to understand, well, I mean, your questions were greater on SDT and, you know, I, I can go and I can read it, but 
like what it like what does it look like? How do I look at it? And and I've been doing this for a long time, and I'm still fascinated because the second the person changes, it changes. Well, you get to see it in practice, right? Like you get yeah. to kind of witness it. it. It must be really fascinating to to study and then to take it practically and mm-hmm. and basically be talking with an athlete and just see it all unpack in front of you, and then you can yeah. use those tools. Can't keep the signal up, eh? <laughs> keep losing it. trying to go to sleep. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Do Do you uh, meditate? Uh, I do. Um, I do. I uh, it probably adopted it um, consistently six, five or six years ago, mm-hmm. um, and it's been a huge part of my my own practice. Uh, I don't impose it on people. Um, I, you know, even when people say, you know, as a psychologist, like, you know, would you recommend and what are the practices? I, I tell people like, you know, go online and mm-hmm. find something that, you know, a simple script or, you know, a, a, a nice sort of audio process that allows you to get to a place. But I work with people to, to create an understanding of a mindful moment. You know, I do that in my office and, you know, what's a mindful moment. And when someone started when they, when they click, when it clicks for them that they can shuttle their attention around so freely and recognize, you know, noise and recognize scent and, you know, really just spend 30 seconds on scent and they can't, hmm. they just won't let themselves. It's like, no, you, you can't like just, you know, there's a diffuser in the room, there's peppermint kind of coming out. You know, I just want you to breathe deep five times and I want your exclusive focus on peppermint on scent and they'll like, okay, I think a gum. That's not what I was getting at. Like you have, like they just, they were so inundated with with uh, information that we can't be present. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily a person who like, you got to go and, and do it on a hill and, you know, overlooking a valley and there's a sun, like you can do it in Safeway as far as I'm concerned. Right. And and as long as you're you're present with yourself, you're recognizing what you're experiencing and, and, you know, can you ground yourself? Can you get to that place quickly? Can you engage your breathing? Can you slow your mind? Um, you know, the whole idea of it is very individual because, uh, well, we're different. So you know, how about yourself? I don't. No? I don't. Even <clears throat> like the eight hours on the bike, that's almost <laughs> meditative itself, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We could sit and unpack that. We don't have to do therapy on me. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I have a, I have a very, um, very busy, 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 uh, mind and Mm. and it's just full of static and full of, I have a hard time. Like I have a hard time sleeping a lot, Mm. but, um, Mm. but yeah, on the, yeah, I tend to, I don't know if I listen to stuff when I'm riding all the time because I want to be distracted or, or if it's just a, to curb boredom or. I'm not sure. I've I've often joked that it's just to, sh- to shut the voices up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not that I'm, I hear voices, but just to, <laughs> just to because I'm pretty uh, pretty open to negative self talk. I I struggle okay. with that all the time. 
And so the way I mitigate that is if I listen to like a, a, a really lengthy podcast or um, audio books, and generally they're always um, nonfiction, something mm. not necessarily self-help, but um, just just stuff that interests me. Like, yeah, yeah someone just taught, it kind of got over music. I find music kind of grating. Sometimes it can be, it can be uh, useful, but uh, I find it there's, there's not, like I said I, at the beginning, I don't read a lot. Like I don't have a lot of time to read, but if I can mm-hmm. be on the bike for three hours, that's more reading, right? Than, yeah. than I would ever get in life. Yeah. So yeah. I'm kind of using that as a tool. So maybe that's why with, I have the headphones in all the time. Mm-hmm. Often I'll take them out, but yeah, I have to be in the right headspace for that. I think mm-hmm. just cruising along, maybe like really late at night, I'll just get sick of noise and just like take them out. And, mm-hmm. but no, I should, I should meditate. It might help me sleep. Just mm-hmm. like calm things down. Not like I have a very complex life or my job is very complex or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I think meditation would be, do you use a guided meditation? Do you use an app or? How no, do you- I, for me, I started, uh, I usually visualize that. Well, I started with imagery because that's my strength. Um, and for me, it was, I just started enhancing it more and more using different senses um, and then pulling different tools in from different senses. And one of the, one of the neat keys was that I started using uh, a tool called the M-Wave um, through the HeartMath Institute. And it's, it's just a heart-focused breathing and kind of uh, gives you, you know, live data into how, you know, either low, medium or high coherence, like low coherence is your brain and your heart aren't really talking. Medium is your brain and heart are talking or, you know, high is your brain and heart are really, really crystal clear. And um, it's, it can, you can change speeds and things like that, but ultimately it's based on heart rate variability, which, you know, if there's a lot of variability in that, in that heart rate, then we're getting a lot of feedback in the brain and the brain's trying to navigate a lot of information that it doesn't really need to navigate. Uh, and we want a calmer mind. And when we get a calmer mind, we have a calmer heart in order to get a calmer heart, we need a calmer mind, right? So they need to go and, and work together. So, you know, I, I don't do like, I don't go and sit somewhere like at the end of the day for half an hour, like I'll do 10 minutes, five times a day, you know, or if I don't have time, you know, I'll do it at the start of the day for 15 minutes. And, you know, I, I try to incorporate it into my day to to make sure that I'm as present as I can possibly be. Um, you know, I, I, I'm never going to use the excuse of a busy schedule to dismiss being mentally and emotionally present with somebody I'm working with. And, you know, hey, I got to excuse me. I had a you know a shitty day that was up at five and, you know, my kids didn't sleep and uh, studying all morning and now my brain's all over the place. But here you are. You know, and now I can't really focus, but, you know, huh, it's not, that's not okay, right? And so to me, that's been one of the most helpful skills to just kind of be present. Uh, and I feel like it would have been such a, a beneficial skill for me growing up uh, as an athlete, as a, as a person. As, as a, a person, yeah, just to be yeah. more present in general. Yeah, and even, it just wasn't a thing. Yeah. Even with children, right? Like you're home with yeah. your kids, and it's, sometimes it's really hard to be present. Yeah. Your mind is just like completely elsewhere. And I yeah. think we talked about that on our phone conversation, but just the idea of surrender, just surrendering yeah. into a moment. And, and, uh, it, it sounds easy to say it, but it's so tough to just surrender, you know, just, just like, you know, you could use that same, same idea with, um, 
you know, just a, a, you're on a bike packing race and you're in the middle of the night and it's pouring rain and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't get pissed off about it. Yeah. You know, you just gear up and you just surrender to it and laugh and just yeah. kind of keep going. Um, yeah, I should, I should look into meditation. I used to do a lot of yoga when I was a bit younger, Oh, okay, very, yeah. very religiously. <clears throat> and, uh, I found it the, um, uh, yeah, I was in a way better place. If, if mm-hmm. even, even before I went for a ride, if I just did, um, couple sun salutations mm-hmm. and just the, I think it's just the breathing actually that does most of it it's just like you, you get into that rhythmic breathing and then your whole body just kind of aligns with that yeah. and then everything just kind of like calms down and then yeah but yeah mm-hmm. it's I, I maybe I lack discipline just to be able to keep doing it I just need to start doing it plus my body would thank me <laughs> I'm so stiff <laughs> <laughs> Feel a little bit better, feel a little bit faster. Move on some different plane rather than driving legs up and down for hours <laughs> at a time, you know? There's nothing wrong with that plane. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's funny you mention that because I feel like I've had this discussion actually the past couple of months with a lot of people. Um, the whole idea of self-love and, you know, it seems like such a hard concept. Um, and, and it really is. And it's almost been like one of those things like mindset. It's almost been misconstrued. And you know, there's too much of the idea that my, that self-love means dismissing everything else in your world, and which is wrong. It's just flat out wrong. You know, like, oh, you've got to get rid of everything in your world. You've got to just be dismissive. You've got to let people go. You've got to... Mm, no, that's not self-love. That's self-absorbed. And self-love is understanding what it is to love oneself and project oneself into the world in that way. And that means that relatedness, like that the whole concept of social beings is super important, you know, and too many times there's this dismissiveness of people who aren't in your inner circle that you don't need anybody anymore, or you've got to get rid of these things. And we make these, these almost existential decisions about really important things in our lives that, that we can't, we shouldn't dismiss, but we do because we're not loving ourselves enough. And that's, again, self-absorption or selfishness. And, you know, I, I think it's it's overly simplistic to look at something like, you know, yoga kind of gets that, that kind of mantra of like, well, it's self-love, it's self-love, it's self-love. You've got to be with oneself. Like, true, but that can be achieved in any activity. That can be achieved anywhere. That can be achieved in a library. That can be achieved with a community. That's the part that really reaches to people. Otherwise, people would just do it in their basement. Right? There wouldn't be any business. There's no, there, there, there would be no monetizing it in any way. Um, so it isn't just about that simple kind of process of just connecting with oneself. It's connecting oneself in the same way others are connecting, but then projecting that connection out to the world. That to me is self-love. And you know, being present with oneself, you know, you can be doing that in a boxing ring. You can be doing that in you know a bike race. You can be doing that in a pool. You can be doing that with your kids. You can be doing that, you know, in, in a gainful employment. That's why I don't buy into the, the work-life balance thing. I don't think work is separate from life, especially if you're passionate about what you do. It doesn't make any sense. I'm passionate about what I do, so I'll tease it out of my life. How? Why? Right? No. Like, that's, that should be a part of your life, and it's just finding that flow within your life that allows you to project more of what that self-love is out. 
not just, you know, uh, a cleansing or catharsis of one sort of environment in order to try to find this journey of, uh, of for oneself. I think that's overly simplistic for it. So, you know, it's interesting you mentioned yoga because I did yoga for three years. I never got any better at it at all. Not one bit. Right. But <clears throat> that's not really the point though. Like in a way, you know, <laughs> but it I doesn't aware, right? Like yeah. That was the, that was the great yeah. thing, but I never got better at it. Right. And it's just like meditation, right? It's a practice. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. you you start, you can only sit for, it's just like, you, you know, you start doing yoga and you can barely bend over and some people can barely <laughs> touch their toes, right? Yeah. But as you yeah. go and you go, you're like, holy, you're starting to get more flexible and it becomes more yeah. enjoyable. And it's, yeah. it's, it's funny that the, the self-determination theory has some kind of juxtaposed needs, right? Like there's a need for mm-hmm. autonomy but then there's a super deep need for that community and that connectedness, right? Yep. So it's there's just all these different buckets. And mm-hmm. I think I get like, yeah, the self-love part of it. It's like you can't, you have to start with yourself, yep. right? Before you can be there for anybody else, like you yep. have to start with yourself. So you got to take care of yourself. And that's mm-hmm. like food, you know, starts yep. with sleep, food, you know, yep. exercise, you know, and then that improves your mental health. Like I know if I don't <clears throat> if I don't get out for some activity at some point during the week, like as busy as it is, doesn't matter. Now it's getting dark. I'll be fat biking at night. But if I mm-hmm. if I if I miss that for even a couple of weeks, you just become a monster, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, all it takes is is an hour outside, and it can completely flip that switch. Yeah. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. So do you uh, when you're um, uh, coaching athletes, do you, do you touch on that a lot as as well? It's like just trying to for them to find that that self love and that mm-hmm. to, as a kickoff to that. Do you help them with that? I encourage uh, almost any team that I work with and and individual athletes that I work with. I encourage the concept of curiosity and playfulness. Um, you know the the old adage of like you can take the sport seriously but yourself lightly. Um, is is super important because that that curiosity is going to get you beyond that uncomfortable point. Um, whether it's like you're you're flat out in a 400 on a track or you're at, you know mile 100 of a century, then it, the curiosity is for like the next five seconds, the next five minutes, the next like I wonder if I can go harder instead of like I think I'm at my limit. Now you're making decisions about yourself, mm. and you know if we think back to the playground usually kids didn't have a limit, you know, not one of them hydrated at 55 minutes, (laughs) right? They said, Oh, you got to take in, you know, three to five milliliters per kilogram body weight in order to be playing for this. You probably should have at least 50 grams of carbohydrate. Zero, zero, zero kids do that at the park. They will play until they fall over. And the curiosity and the playfulness ideas is it's ingrained in us. And we lose that when we become so structured and almost, we take on the culture of whatever it is that we're supposed to do and assume that identity to that culture rather than adapt to uh, adapt ourselves to fit into whatever the demands of the culture are and impose ourselves on that culture. And that can be at the highest level of sport because I can be curious and playful for a moment, regardless of, you know, I'm at a heart rate of 200 and I'm present enough in my mind to go, <laughs> this is fun. And like literally kind of jock, you know, like yeah. there's a moment where, where you have the awareness for, and then that drive or striving for something just on the other side of that. But that, the, that, that, that to me is something that's always been there in young people, barring things like trauma and stuff. But, 
you know, we're, we're all playful. And, and when you get out to, well, I have to go to training or I train nine times a week or, you know, when I said to my swimmers, like I didn't, I didn't call them that at the time, but at the time, like the playfulness was present in every single practice. And as a coach, I always wondered why it was, was such a value and they're working their butts off, but they're, they're having fun. And like people come into practice and they're like, there'd be one or two kids just kind of, and then the rest are like, you know, having fun, joking, laughing, a five seconds of rest and they're off the wall again. You know, you, you know, like to use the term juxtapose because the, then I take my triathletes and, you know, they're either locked in type A serious or like completely aloof and apathetic to like, well, you know, I'm just going to go on 10 seconds rest instead. Like, no, I asked you to go on 20. Yeah, but I don't think that's going to help me. Like, it's just. <laughs> doesn't work for me, coach. Get on it, right? Like, <laughs> because we're adults and we sometimes lose the curiosity for what we're, what we're capable of. Um, and, and instead of it being a, a, a discipline thing, it becomes a curiosity thing. So I think it's kind of, a, it's kind of neat. Yeah. I think that plays well into the endurance thing as well. Right. Cause mm-hmm. you, you do, you're spending so much time out there. It's like, you've got to find the fun in it. Yeah. You know, you, you can't just, I mean, you, you can get into those flow states, but I find sometimes you're just marching along and you're at it all day and you just got your head down and I forget to kind of look around. Like, oh, I got to look around, man. I'm missing, like, look, oh, look at the mountains over there. You just kind of get kind of buried in the task. And uh, as soon as you kind of uh, become aware of your surroundings a bit and it becomes a bit more fun, it's not kind of like that death march (laughs) (laughs) through the woods trying to get to the, trying to get to the finish line. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean, and again, it all, it all goes back to mindset, right? Just having a positive, I can, I can totally relate more to that aloof kind of athlete rather than the type A kind of yeah. locked in to the, like that much focus. I'm kind of more of the like, Hey man, let's go. I'd be riding up beside that guy. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? Are you okay? Yeah. Having a good time? Then <laughs> I, I would like... drop him. <laughs> okay. See you later. <laughs> nice rig nice rig yeah, yeah. <laughs> shattered more teeth on that front ring i'm gonna drop you now <laughs> i still remember my my very first uh, uh half ironman triathlon um i was you know i was i was a swimmer so i was out you know nice and early in the race and you know there's nobody out there you're like 20th out of the water out of 700 and you know there's there's you talk about the alter ego there was no way that i was able to park my ego for how many people were about to pass me <laughs> but i remember one guy rifled past me at probably 10 kilometers an hour faster than i was going and he like and then he backed up to me and then he looked at my rate and my bike he goes is that that nice frame and i was like i said like, yeah and he goes sweet i love it and he was gone and i was just like <laughs> I don't like you as a human. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> See, that's like, that's a great attitude. He's he, yeah. He's, he's probably yeah. wasn't even running in the red. He was probably just no, like 80%, no. maybe 70%. Yeah. And he was that's just so doing funny. it and he was rocking it. <laughs> so that was swimming was your strength. And then you, yeah. you're a, you ride bikes, right? Yeah. 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 Never fast. I wouldn't call myself fast, but I mean, it, I, I enjoy it. I love it. I love to push myself on it and, you know, the unfortunate side is that you just get more people catch you on the run too. So, right. you know, I look good getting out of the water. So, like, man, that guy's fast. You know, <laughs> at some point, everybody thought I was fast. That's funny. <laughs> so you, tr- you try to you try to create that gap, that big enough gap yeah. where people won't catch you when you get on the bike or the run. Yeah. I, triathlon doesn't appeal to me at all. 
it just seems like so much so much work to it i mean obviously some people are just so good at that right yeah oh, i was no. swimming with the kids at a pool swimming's hard <laughs> you know yeah. like i sink i'm like a rock i just sink like a rock so it's like double the effort so like i'm treading water i'm like <sighs> and so when the kids this is how you do it and i can barely do it because i'm gonna sink to the bottom but yeah I, I, just the idea of or running like i did a uh when i lived in squamish i ended up volunteering for the uh, we had a group uh, of folks teaching people how to do a run walk for the Vancouver sun run. Oh yeah. And I'm not a runner at all, but I did it one year with, with my girlfriend at the time and it was pretty fun. Like it was okay. And then they yeah. asked me to coach maybe because of my attitude or something, but <laughs> it was super fun. It was super fun. Like um, um, coaching people, like even just to walk, yeah. to, to walk that distance. And I think it's all about just keeping it fun. Right. Yeah. And then just, and then you, you watch the progression and then you remind them of the, your progression. It's like, did you know that you couldn't even run for two minutes when we started this? Yeah. And like, you've been running for 10 minutes. Have you thought about that? And they're like, Oh yeah. They you kind of forget because yeah. the, that graduation into that, into that progression is so, uh, so subtle for some of the people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah really. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should take up running again. I thought about it. I think it'd be healthy to move in a different, a different plane and so much different. easier too, man just to just throw the shoes on and go for a run yeah <laughs> i don't know i can't get i can't get intrinsically motivated about that though i just can't so you got to reward yourself you started the other end right <laughs> what to run towards new shoes. oh get new shoes yeah new Is shoes it? every 100 kilometers you know oh, new afford, shoes every 100 kilometers new shoes every 100 kilometers can't afford that <laughs> I gotta, I gotta keep buying stuff for my bikepacking rig. I gotta get exactly. that all loaded up. You're smart man. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Well, we covered a lot of stuff, hey? Yes. Yeah, we talked yep. about everything. Talked about intense. It's great. Was I it good? Did you that. enjoy that? Yeah. 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 That was a lot of fun. Yeah, like I said, I I tried to get a bit more up to speed, but it's I can't. It, it I just couldn't absorb some of the i mean the concepts i think are pretty uh not easy sorry i can't say that are yeah you, they are though they okay. really are that's they, they're very applicable yeah. um you know the 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 original sort of part about self-termination theories cognitive evaluation theories whether you know a person's perception of whether they could do something well and then the feedback that they got on that whether it was informational or controlling and you know, it, it, it grew into a number of other sub theories and that the whole idea of motivation not being an amount is really appealing to people because I don't have a higher low amount of motivation. I have it for something. And when we start to understand that it for something, the language that we use for it is, is well, it drives your self-talk, right? So you get better at using more applicable in the moment progressive language that allows you to get out of feeling like you're, you know, morally obligated to something. Like I always say, like, you know, I put OIT on a, on a board and I'll say, okay, like how many have to shoulds and coulds are, are in your life? Like, you know, when people say, what? Like, well, I could go, but you know, and, and, and so then how many wants, cans and wills are in your life? Like, you know, when you start to think about the things you want to do, the things you can do and the things you will do, you really start to understand and note how often you get autonomous motivation. You know, whether it's extrinsic or intrinsic autonomous motivation, it's still yours. 
You know, if you want to do something, you're going to go and do it, you know, but there's, there's, there might be a, but okay. So, you know, someone who says, well, you're, you're, you're a person you're interacting with, like, you know, am I ready for this? Like, you know, now it took some convincing, you know, but she or he couldn't see at the moment that the confidence was here and they were projecting a whole bunch of lower levels of confidence here. The relatedness factor raises one's perception of confidence and lowers the importance of the unknown, thus lowering anxiety for the moment. Uh, what, right. what do you want to do? And they're like, ah, I just, but they have to make the decision for themselves, mm-hmm. right? If they make the decision and they seek you out on the day, they might thank you for all of the, the feedback and like, man, it was so good. Your encouragement was awesome. Just reinforcing that importance of relatedness for that person. Because if nobody was there, they wouldn't have gone in the first place. So the power of that, that those elements are, are around us everywhere. It's just a matter of understanding our language and, and how we see things when there's challenges or threats to that and when there's opportunities for us to really grow from. And, and it's neat when you, when you take something. Like you said, it is an easy idea. It just isn't easy to unpack it all because it's, it, it's not simple, right? But you start looking through it, you can't go back. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So for, for those of us that don't have um, coaches or even sports psychologists, um, who are going to line up? Like, what kind of tools could you give just us? Pe- mm-hmm. People are going to start these these you know these journeys into these bike packing races. Like, what kind of what kind of tools are are available for us to use to stay motivated? I think, you know, there's actually, to be honest with you, there's quite a few, uh, if, if some of the mental training tools uh, are people like looking at emotional regulation, uh, confidence, um, you know, a goal setting, those kinds of concepts, there's lots of good online, um, you know, packages and processes that, that sports psychs kind of offer. Um, the, the, obviously, the, just like they say, like, if you and I are sitting around having coffee, I, you know, I... I think it's different. It's more organic than it is in technology, like you said, because now you can see me. It's, you know, it, it's different than if we were just on the phone versus if we were just emailing back and forth. And right. so, you know, when people say like, I, "I want something, but I, I don't really know what," then the online places are great places to start because then they start to look for maybe what they don't know. Right? I don't know what I don't know. And so, what I always see to people is, you know, going online and looking at things like, like a theory, like self-determination theory and, you know, utilizing and following it in not the, the theoretical world, like the journals, but following it in the, in the online world. Um, that's the whole idea of, of finding applicability and being able to digest something that others have gone and, and rigorously researched to make it applicable, to, to operationalize it. So when I look at motivation, you know, the thing, three of the things that I, that we talked about here tonight, um, you know, curiosity by def, by definition is, is autonomous. Um, because it's, it's, what am I actually curious for myself and, and what am I capable of? The second part to me is, is what's my choice in the matter? Like I have a choice. So when, when you're competing attention for, uh, whether I have enough time for my focus is in the wrong place. What am I choosing my time for versus what do I have time for? Have to is a controlled or a motivational statement. What do I choose is autonomous. 
and and by you know by nature a lot of times we're now looking at at unpacking really maybe unimportant things that we're prioritizing over ourselves uh, and I think the third thing too is the, is the playfulness you know the emphasis of of sport culture that's why I really like reading about what you guys do is the emphasis of sport culture can often impose um, you know a willful culture on people and intimidate them and that's what's stopping them from going and trying something uh, and, and for the pure intrinsic love of it. Like I'm, I self-admit, like I won't go to a triathlon unless I train my butt off for one. Now, could I? Yeah, absolutely. I have no problem. I can muscle through a triathlon and, and I'd have no problem with it. But in my mind, I won't let myself do that because I won't give myself that kind of time. But I've also, you know, after years of beating the shit out of myself for not going and doing them, you know, I've looked at it and said, well, you have your PhD, you have, you know, your exam, you have your practice. Once those kinds of things have been settled, you know, it's, I'm going back to it. You know, whereas before I would have just been, you know, self-deprecating and frustrated that I couldn't get out and ride as much as I wanted to. You know, like, why can't I go for four or five times a week? Like, why can't I? I can get up at 4.30 in the morning and I can go do that. And it's like, yeah, okay, then don't do your PhD. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I got to make a decision here, but, right. but I, I can't keep feeling the pressure of trying to achieve all these things, and that's when I think when people really understand themselves, they give themselves permission to, to be truly motivated for something they want, and then that makes all those mental skills so much easier, right? Uh, or applicable. I don't think they're easy, but they're more applicable. So, like the the, the motivational factor to me is is one of the biggest. Um, you know, I'm biased because it's a great deal of what I study, but um, it is to me, you know, a foundational level of, of what people's interests and sustainable interests will be for. Uh, whether it's on a Tuesday afternoon at four to five or whether it's broad based for eight months, uh, it's going to be motivation. Cool. So yeah. do, do you have a, a success story you could share with one of your athletes that, that, yeah. that this um, applied to? Actually, I, lo I love sharing a story um, uh, of a very, very hardworking um, uh, uh, powerlifter. Um, I almost called him a bodybuilder. Send me over the edge if I said that. Oh, but no, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, was, he was very, very strong. I had a goal of 500 pounds uh, on a deadlift, and he was stuck at 490. And it was so, it was so hard because like, he, he, he was such a hardworking person, right? He had all the tangible proof, uh, the periodized plan, diligence, nutrition, like he was doing everything he possibly could. And that's what he landed in my office. He just kind of came in and sat down and said, you're helping me. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's do this. And, and so after a session or two, you know, he, he felt like he was hitting a wall and all this plateau language and all this kind of stuff. And, and we're sitting there and I said, you know, uh, let's go to the gym. And so we wanted over to the gym and, and, I said, I want you to put 500 pounds on the bar. And so he loads 500 pounds. And just like you expect, like 500 pounds on a bar, that gets attention in a gym. Like people start kind of, oh, what are you going to do? Like, right. you know, I was kind of getting riled up and, you know, the energy in the gym starts firing it up. And, and it's, you know, we're looking at that and we're saying, holy man, like, it's incredible, man. Like, that's heavy, heavy, heavy. And, and then I said, I said, now go get two five pound plates. And he said, okay. And, you know, strong dude. I mean, there's like dinner plates for this yeah, guy. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, so, you know, you're looking at five pound plates, you're looking at 500 pounds. I said, you know, which is heavier? And he 
does the duh, <laughs> which was great for me because I'm stuttering. I said, so then why in your mind are you trying to lift that every time? And he looks at me, he goes, what? And I said, you got this goal of 500 pounds and every time you come to the gym, that is one heavy weight you're trying to lift. But really all you're trying to lift is this. You've lifted that. You've done 490. Right. You have literally two five-pound plates to lift, and that's it. And I said, just flip them around, hold them in your hands. And he just kind of tossed them around his hands and just kind of gets mad a little bit. And, and I said, no, 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 we're not going there, you know, because what does that emotion do for you? He's like, I feel like it's a failure. And so, okay, so let's so we put that weight away and everything, and the people in the gym were kind of disappointed. <laughs> Back to my office and... And, and so we unpacked it in the moment. I said, like, you're visualizing lifting something that's super, super heavy, super hard. And when you go to that gym, I want you to imagine you're lifting two five-pound plates because your body's already trained to lift 490. And so he, you know, we went through kind of a, a, an imagery script briefly and kind of some self-talk that went along with it and came back a week later. And, and uh, I said, so, you know, how are things going? He goes, blew the doors off. I said, what? He goes, 525. Whoa, <laughs> that's a big jump. I said, you, you mean to tell me you had 35 pound jump, 35 pounds. And he's like, Matt, and I'm still going. Like I lifted 505. Then I lifted 515. Then I went to five. Like, and he just like kept doing, doing. And it, it was such a big transformational shift for him to stop lifting 500 pounds and start lifting 10. Yeah. And, and that's why he just didn't stop. He just kept going. And, you know, I've done it with, um, you know, track and field athletes. Uh, I've done it with, uh, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of track and field athletes that have done it with, done it with runners, like trying to break this PB, uh, you know, uh, 1730 for, for 5k or whatever. And, you know, okay. So <clears throat> what's your goal time? I was like, well, I'm just aiming for under 1730. Well, like, no, no, no. What's your goal time? And, so while well, 1725. Okay, great. So you gotta make up five seconds in that 5k. And they go, what? And all of a sudden it just seems too simple. And they free themselves from this pressure and they they go and they look for five seconds in the course rather than 17 minutes and 30 seconds. And you know, they blow the doors off personal best. And you know, like those kinds of things are really fascinating to watch because you can't can't really predict how the person's going to respond but you can almost see this this kind of mental and emotional freeing in themselves when they start to think less about what they have to achieve and more of what they can and that 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 slide to feeling like they're on a plateau and i say to coaches all the time the plateaus don't exist they really don't um like the, the mental ones we're always we can always be working on something mental we can always be working on something emotional um, the physical ones, yeah, psychomotor domain, sure. There might be a there might be a, a plateau there for a few months in the training element, but there isn't in the mental and emotional. And so the mental and emotional are going to free the physical from the plateau, and now I can start to improve. And so it's always kind of this game of of you know curiosity of what you're really capable of, and it should be fun. Yeah, it really should be fun, but. Just like the word should is down there on the controlled side of the continuum, it isn't always. And people feel like they focus on the things they don't control instead of the things that they do. Yeah, it's kind of like you're increasing the resolution of the task. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. instead of having this big pixelated goal of 500 pounds, right? It's yeah. just like, yeah, well, it's it's 10. It's like yeah. like what, 1% of that weight, really. So a tiny, tiny pixel, you know, yeah. um, I can relate because, um, again, I told you I, that last race I did, I was super scared. But as soon as I sat down and started looking at a map and started breaking it into chunks, yeah, because my first chunk was like, <clears throat> okay, I want to get to Cranbrook, which is, I didn't get to Cranbrook. It was a goal I didn't reach, but I was okay with that. But mm-hmm. uh, as soon as I cut it down and started looking at the map, like, okay, so from here to there is fifty k, and from here to there is like eighty, and then from yeah. there to there is hundred. It's just like, it it made it way. Oh, it's like oh, okay, I can, yeah, that I can get my head around that, mm-hmm. um, rather than mm-hmm. just looking at the the whole loop as a whole. Yeah. Um, yeah, just increasing the resolution and, and making smaller, um, setting your expectations to smaller wins, you know. Yeah. And then when you get, when you do that 50K or that extra, oh, I need to get to that bridge or cross that river and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, wow, that was fast. I'm here already. <laughs> you know, and you look at your cue sheets and you're like, oh, it's only 50K now to that thing? That's awesome. Yeah. You know, when I started, it was 200K away. <laughs> oh, it's only 50. It's awesome. <clears throat> Well, and, and we talk about that from a, like an outcome and a process perspective, right? Like, you know, that outcome focus uh, often creates anxiety because uh, you don't control it. But, you know, you trust the process, but you first have to have a process to trust. And to have a, a the, the mindset that you're talking about, like being able to break something down instead of become overwhelmed by the possibility of not doing something, you know, that's answering the, that's answering the anxiety and feeding in a failure of an ego. Versus what can I do in the moment? You know, you don't lack the physical ability to crush 50K. Um, but you don't have to think that. You first have to plan it. And then you go, oh, I'm just going to trust my body. You know, the emotional side just wham, drops to the table and now you're just going. Right? So, like, it, you trust the process. First, you have to have a process to trust. And, you know, you stumble on that. And, and you know, I remember you sharing that with me on the phone. It's like, yeah, like, that, that's... Too many people, that seems like it seems like a logical thing for someone to do, but they just don't do it. They just get into the moment and they forget about being able to just do something that simple. And they overwhelm themselves with a uh, hundred other factors. When in reality, it's like you said, that you just sit down, look at the map, chunk it out, get to that bridge. That's it. And, and you go and you do. And celebrate. Right? And celebrate, yeah. you know, have yeah. those little celebrations when you get to those, those points, Absolutely. you know, like pat yourself on the back. Yeah. Like we don't do that. We're so hard on ourselves and we don't give ourselves enough credit yeah. for the, yeah. for the awesome stuff that we do. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally it's been a great agree. chat. Awesome chat. Yeah. Where, Thanks for having me. Oh, where can people find you online? You're not super active, are you? Yeah, no, I'm, I don't have like the YouTube following and stuff like that. Um, like I have my webpage and, and Twitter and it's not necessarily like it's just underscore uh, or sports psych underscore Matt. Um, but it's, you know, the basic things that I try to put out to the world are, are things that are pretty congruent with what I do in the office so that people know what to expect. Uh, you know, I, I want to be as transparent as possible and um, do have a couple of things on, on kind of Facebook live, did some Facebook live stuff with a sport group here in the community and it was lots and lots of fun. Uh, I think it's one of those profiles that I'm thinking or, or trying or planning to build. Um, but again, just as we do, I could be up at two in the morning. Doing that. 
you know, and then we're deprioritizing sleep. So uh, <laughs> yeah. a, lot of, a lot of pressure to do that, but not right now. Just mostly a web page, that kind of stuff. But I do have a lot of athletes uh, that I work with, uh, you know, via Skype or FaceTime, those kinds of things, whether they're national or, or international athletes or just athletes that aren't here, uh, you know, where I am. So um, those are kind of ways that people have gotten in touch with me because, you know, they, they like the message or like the vibe or have seen me somewhere and, and touch base with me. So cool, man. Yeah. yeah. I lost your video too. <laughs> I lost it again. I'm going to, I'm going to call you right back. Okay. <clears throat> oh, so much editing in this one, man. It's going to be brutal. I have to go back and cut all that out. <laughs> <laughs> all time. Eh? But I wanted to see your face so I could say, give you a proper goodbye. And, and uh, yeah, so thanks for the, thanks for spending the time and talking. Wow, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a very this. very interesting chat for sure. Yeah. I uh, I look forward to following you guys as well. And, and oh, yeah. said, I've, I've learned as much about uh, sports and athletes as as I probably have ever taught or, or helped anybody find out about themselves. And you know, going online and, and looking through the web page and listening to a couple of the podcasts and see your recommendations. It's you know, it's been awesome to, to cool. kind of get to know and, and get to grow my own understanding. So it's very cool for introducing me. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we're uh, you know, since I joined the, the, the Bike Pack Canada community, I guess in the last three years, it's, it's been awesome. It's such a great, great group of people cool. and the vibe is so good. And uh, yeah, and I think it's pretty tight too. So um, mm-hmm. we're going to have a, a summit at the end of the month. So I'm not sure, uh, maybe 28th and 29th, if you happen to be in Canmore. You should, oh, uh, neat. yeah, come to the opera house and say hi and meet everybody. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So, uh, yeah. I, I might actually, I, I might actually be in Calgary at that time. So, uh, you know, depending on if I got a chance, I might sneak out. Yeah. You just grab your bike and ride out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I have to be active and sweaty. Be <laughs> All right, <laughs> Matt. Be my people. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again and have a good night. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, right. Steve. Take care. You too. Ciao. Bye-bye. I want to thank Matthew Bain again for his time and for talking to us today. Um, I thought there was a lot of really good takeaways out of that podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can send me voice memos and guest suggestions and feedback to bikepackcanadapodcast at gmail.com. I'd really like to hear from you. I haven't really been getting a lot, and I know it's kind of the shoulder season, and people maybe just kind of not out there as much, but uh, just uh, let me know what you think. Let me know if you're listening. Um, and obviously fill me in on the adventures you go on. I know there's going to be a lot of you who are, uh, regular winter campers that are going to be getting out there. And, uh, all of us here in the community would really like to hear from you. So until next time, get out there, ride bikes, sleep in the woods and keep the rubber side down. <laughs>